Hello and welcome to Entmoot, the Battle Games in Middle-Earth podcast all about the Middle-Earth strategy battle game from Games Workshop. I'm Harry and this is episode 32 of this fine podcast. So uh, welcome along, welcome along and um, it's actually going to be a slightly different podcast to usual. Um, Obviously no tournaments, sadly, um, unless you're Australian, that's pretty much the case across the world. But... At the moment, I wanted to do something a little bit different to freshen things up on the podcast. So we're not going to do the usual format, uh, whether it's uh, sort of going on an adventure, talking about lists, or or even doing uh, Riddles in the Dark, which last time sounded something a little bit like this. So if you think you know who speaks next in that clip and what they say, do get in touch, entmootpodcast at gmail.com. So actually, I suppose we kind of have done uh, Riddles in the Dark. Anyway, um, it's not going to be a usual podcast for one reason and one reason alone, and that's because this time we're not talking about lists. List building is, although it's interesting and it's fun and it's kind of... I suppose um, it's one of those things that gets people really going in the uh, the wargaming community, especially in SBG and, and most Warhammer types of games. People love to talk about what armies they're taking, the combination of stuff to make it more optimised, all that sort of stuff. And, and I hear lots of conversations about this. But what I've realised over the last few years of, of playing, uh, going to tournaments and playing um, people and understanding who comes to the top of these tournaments, I've come to realise it's funny that it's called a strategy battle game because it seems to be all about uh, strategy and how you play the game. So um, what I've decided, I've gathered together an army, and by that I mean four people, um, who are absolutely brilliant at this game. Um Currently, they're in the top players, definitely in the UK. Um, they're some of the few that aren't uh, working at Games Workshop, therefore uh, aren't are actually allowed to talk to me on this podcast. So apologies to uh, Ed Ball and Jay Clare, who are uh, you know among the top uh, top tier gamers. And these four are consistent is the best word for them because regularly they're either in the top five or top ten or you know top few in the tournaments that they play at and currently uh, are in the top few in the league as well so I just had to ask them to come on to the podcast to talk about strategy in the strategy battle game so I've decided I'm asking them top table tips. This is what we're talking about throughout the whole of the podcast. So coming up, we have Dave Clubley, who is um, currently second or third in the league, depending on whether it's actually been updated. We'll explain later. Um, We've also got Dave Farmer, who's sixth or so in the league. Uh, We've also got Will Champion, who came uh, who came first in the GBHL last year um, and is regularly on the podcast as a winner. Um, and also, uh, we've got Jasmine Tetley, who uh, not only won the uh, Grand Tournament at Warhammer World last year, which was one of the last sort of big tournaments before, uh, before COVID hit, uh, but she's also currently second in the league, um, or, well, depends on whether it's been updated. We'll talk about that later on in the podcast. And... Um, so we've got four people, and I've, I've, I've basically asked them one question. I said, I want to talk to you about tips and tricks to actually make you a better player during the game. So 
I'm not talking, you know, should you take a shield um, with a with you know with Boromir, or should you put your horses on, uh, you know, spend the ten points to give your heroes mounts? Because once you get past a certain level in the game, you know that these things are the case. You know you have to do that. You know what makes a list more optimised. And you know I've talked plenty about these choices you can make during the podcast, and I will do again in the future. But in this particular episode, and maybe I'll make a series of it, or I certainly intend to make a series of it, I want to talk about the practical things that make the game easier or that make you win a game. So, without much further ado, let's start with pretty much the basics. Dave Clubley is, uh, as I mentioned, in the top three or four of the uh, league at the moment, and he's been a veteran of the game for a very long time. He's certainly on the tournament scene a lot. And he knows how to run a battlefield. So I asked him to come up with some of his tips and tricks for how to play the strategy battle game. Let's dive into the conversations. Thank you, Harry. Lovely to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you. And from what I gather, I mean, you've mentioned uh, Entmoot in the past to me at events and things like that. Am I right in thinking you're an avid, avid listener? (laughs) <laughs> I am an avid listener, and I apologise wholeheartedly, but I never take part in your <laughs> um, uh, quiz Riddles game. in the dark, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Is it too hard? Is that what is that what's stopping people? It's normally that I watch it. You were so good of content, Harry, that I normally watch it after you've released another episode. Oh, I see, I see. That well, yeah. that, there you go. That's probably why uh, it, it is. It is tricky, and and also I suppose because it's embedded in the middle of the podcast, you end up kind of listening to it in the middle, and then at the end you you might think about emailing, but by then you've completely forgotten about the riddle, so uh, yeah. you don't bother. But um, anyway, David, nice to have you on. Um, it's it's a pleasure to hear. I know I've I've sort of heard your name uh, for many years and played you a couple of times and and. Encountered you at many different tournaments. Many of people will know you, but there'll be plenty that don't. Um, so just just establish a bit of your hobby history for me. I mean, how long have you been playing the game, and how long have you been playing in tournaments? Um, since it came out, uh, pretty much when those magazines came out, was that like two thousand two? Yeah, two thousand three. Yeah. yeah, so too, too long, too long. Did you ever stop? Um, yeah, I had that. I think we all have when we go off to university and pretend we're too cool. Um, there's definitely a lull um, there Um, but I was very lucky that my dad kept all my miniatures and he still played with them so they're all still there when I came back to the hobby Yeah and you've got a bit of a family uh, vibe going there like you mentioned already your dad and you've got a brother as well and you all all play Yes, I'm very fortunate that way yeah, I suppose that is uh, that is the thing. Having people around you that can keep, you can play no matter what, even when the game was perhaps in its sort of uh, dying times when it was a bit less popular. That that you've got people that can pl- you can play with anyway. Yeah, there was always a load of people at my club that played it, which is handy and lucky. And that's down in the Reading area, isn't it? Or was? Yeah, that's the War Games Association of Reading. Not don't live there anymore, but it's a great club. So if anyone's nearby, I'd wholeheartedly recommend going down there when when we can again. Absolutely right, and there's a huge event that you run every year called War, which is, or well, you you run a Lord of the Rings event in War, which is the uh, the big the big annual sort of thing, which has got loads of different things going on, a big whole convention. Yeah, yeah, um, it's crazy. That's moving to well, it would have been last year. Uh, this year now will be at Ascot Racecourse, Ooh. so it's moving up in the world, fancy and big. That is pretty exciting. So, um, and in terms of your gaming credentials, I mean, what kind of gamer are you? Are you a are you a sort of beer and pretzels gamer, as they say? Although I hate that term because 
nobody <laughs> in this country eats, actually eats pretzels, really. But um, are you a sort of friendly gamer, casual gamer, or are you, you know, full-on filth? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I like would like to describe myself as 50-50, like um, half into competitive gaming, half into the scenarios and the theme behind it all. Um, but I have had my competitive streak in me, and for my shame, I have used some nasty armies in the past, Harry. Well, go on. T- tell me a couple of sample of your, uh, your some of your nasty things, because I know I've definitely seen you with lots and lots of Citadel Guard. Uh, sorry, Guard of the Fountain Court before. <laughs> well, to be fair, um, I went uh, to GBHL tournaments originally as a young, innocent, know nothing with nice armies, and I got corrupted by the Dark Lord. <laughs> Um, so I, I did try out the whole back in the old rules, a, a Shadow Lord with Goblin King and a Moria Shaman nonsense. Um, yeah, it, it just it didn't feel good though, actually, to be honest. But uh, I like to I like now to come. Yeah, like you say, like take Gondor, take the best troops. All right, you're spamming them, but at least <laughs> at least you're just taking Gondor. Yeah, at least it's not sort of weird combinations of of red red alliance stuff, which is which I can I can respect. I can respect that. Um, Each their own. Exactly, exactly. Um, and Dave, I've got you on this um, because, uh, as we've already met, talked about in the podcast, that um, I, I I think there's a stage at which people who are certainly new to the game they've played the they've played the game a few times. Maybe you know you're getting into the sort of double figures of having played the game, and and you, you kind of have a pretty decent grasp on the rules. But then there seems to be that sort of barrier because this is one of those games that is, is, I suppose it's easy to learn but hard to master. And I want to get over that barrier. And, and I know lots of people listening will be thinking exactly the same thing. And you've been playing the game, uh, as you mentioned, right since the start and playing fairly competitively. Um, and you're in the league at the moment, in the GBHL, although to be fair, <laughs> it's the, the league's been on a little standstill. Um, but you're second in the league. You know, you're consistently up there as, as you know, the top five or so players in, in tournaments you play in. Um, how, is there a way, do you think? I mean, I'll, I'll talk about tips and tactics um, specifics in a few minutes' time. But is there a thing that you would recommend to help get people over that sort of initial knowledge of the game and, and maybe improve their game in any way? Um, first of all, disclaimer, because there will probably be a lot of angry emails written to you, Harry. <laughs> I in no way bragged about being second in the league. <laughs> <laughs> you were bragging before we before we pressed the record button, Dave. I don't know what you're talking well, about. Well, where's the proof, Harry? Where's the proof? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, you have you, you yeah. Uh, equally, you are you know you you I would a veteran, a veteran, and, and a competitive person, uh, as you've already said. So I I think. Us, us pe- people like me who you know middle middle ranking always would love to um, pick your brains, I guess. Okay, well, if you'd like to go from the middle ranks to the slightly above the middle ranks, yes. Um, I think uh, the best advice I could give is just to ask your opponent after the game what they thought um, you could have done differently. That's a really good way to get advice. Yeah, it absolutely does, and I think that that's something that I, I've I've done fairly well because um of, because of the podcast basically i've been i've always talked to people after the game and picked over things that i did wrong and and you can learn so much from your opponents absolutely yeah and i yeah i hear you do it on your podcast it's a, it's a great way to learn and you're teaching people as well sometimes 
Harry as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I can point out errors in their game, and you can point out errors in yours. And actually, I think sometimes you can come away from a game thinking something along the lines of, oh, "I'm really annoyed that I did that. I'm really annoyed that I did that wrong," or whatever the equivalent is. And um, and and then you you speak to your opponent, and they they're annoyed about something that they did wrong and did, that you did right or you exploited. And then you go, "Oh yeah, actually, I wasn't so bad." So it can be a, quite a, a cathartic experience sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. And and. In terms of, I mentioned those specific tactics. So, for example, um, I've heard some really imaginative ideas from people in the past. I mean, um, in, in an episode that, with Ed Ball, the, the veteran uh, Ed Ball, um, he mentioned thing, little things like um, jump, taking your ring wraith, uh, who's on a fell beast, and dismounting him and jumping him into a gap, all that sort of things. Are there any little, picks, uh, little tricks that you've picked up over your many years of gaming uh, that you'd be willing to share with us now? So when you asked me this question, I did think about it long, long and hard. Oh, good. Um, yes, you know, if I think about lots of things long and hard. And um, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, um, yeah, I, I think uh, we could be here for five hours and I could bore everyone to death. Because I really think when you talk about trips and tips, I think it depends upon the army that you are playing with and the army that you are playing against. So I'm, uh, it, obviously that is a great example that a lot of people don't see coming. Mm. This mountain hero to get for a smaller gap. Lovely. Very niche, but when it works, it works. Um, in terms of trips like that, I I can't offer you, the, your listeners, Harry, and yourself, if you want to take my advice, anything like that. But I've got okay. some good, more general ideas of how to use your models yeah, now that would be brilliant because, uh, yeah, as I said, that specific tip is very, very specific. Although dismounting a hero, um, you know, you, it, you can do it a lot, but it doesn't come up a lot. And also it's very hard to think of in the moment and you have to yeah. uh, you have to be really, uh, really have the right moment to do it. But yes, general tips and tricks are, are even better. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, like I said, I could talk to you for hours about different models and different armies. But yeah, I think... Generally, obviously, the, the the game and the turn itself is split down into three areas. No, obviously, there's more than that, but we've got move, shoot, and combat, which is really what matters, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And I say starting with the move phase, Harry, which is probably the most important point. And when you asked me this question, I thought to myself, what happens when I play newer players? Who, you know, tell me they're newer players, or I know. Um, and why is it I think I beat them? Um, and I think it, it, a lot of it comes down to the move phase, Harry, mm. um, which is what I'd like to say, like, preparing for the charge. Um, Ooh, so, okay. yeah, I mean, as you know in the game, four things could happen. Your opponent could charge you when they have priority, and therefore you get to counter charge. Yeah. Um, or the vice versa could happen. You know, you could charge them and they could counter charge. Or, um, obviously, you can charge when you've lost priority, and therefore there is no counter charge. Um, and what I see a lot of newer players do is they don't prepare for this charge. They accept that, you know, they're going to get charged. And that's fine because you can't always be the person who charges in the perfect position. doesn't always work. But they don't prepare their force to take the charge well. Um, and what I mean by that exactly is, is kind of two things. First, position your heroes right. Um, a hero like a normal Captain Harry would be easily undone by someone like Bolg for example. Absolutely. Yes, and yet you'll still see it where players leave their captain because he looks cool in the front rank. And, you know, it's a good position to have him for Farouk moves, etc. They'll leave their captain in the front rank. And then, all that's, you know exactly what's going to happen to that captain. Bolg's going to go in, dead captain. Mm. There goes your might points. 
So you really do have to think about, yes, it, taking a charge is going to hurt, but there are a lot of things you can do to mitigate it. And the first one I would say to new players is think about where your heroes are. So, so in that example, um, for your captain, would you want them to be, I don't know, hiding in the back rank? Or, or would you just want them on a complete opposite side to bulk? Or, because obviously the, the instinct of, a, of a, um, a, a new player is, well, my captain is better than my troops or my front ranker troops. So I want them fighting against their troops. But obviously you don't, in that instance you've just explained, you don't have a choice. Bulg will be charging. And so how, <laughs> how, do, you, how do you get around that and go, well, actually, I still want to maximize the, the power of that, um, uh, of that captain? I mean, you can absolutely still put them in the front rank, and the best thing to do when you do that is to measure Bolg. And if Bolg's on a walk and he's got a 10-inch move, then you just need to make sure your captain's in a front rank position that is more than 10 inches away. Yeah, so it, it is that simple, isn't it? And and what about other kinds of troops? Because I know you say so you've got to receive that charge properly, um, and I guess that, that simple things like, I don't know, uh, putting your cavalry not to be uh, in the front rank or whatever so that they can't get charged and set there, or you can charge them back. Absolutely, yeah. Cavalry, a great one. You know, keep them on flanks, keep them slightly behind, bring them in on the second turn if you need to. Um, and then your your main, as I call it, shield wall, which, you know, we obviously have the rural shield wall, but this is your, your front rank of troops backed up by spears. It's very common in most armies. Mm. Um, you want to position them where, where your opponent can get the least amount of kills on them. So as, your, as the Aussies say, and you've been on the Green Dragon, you uh-huh. know, Yep, traps win games, folks. <laughs> and it, it's true, it's a very true phrase. So if you come towards me and you overexpose your battle line, when I hit you on the first turn, I'm not going to engage you in a fair fight because <laughs> only chumps fight fair, Harry. Absolutely. What I'm going to do, <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to go around your flanks and I'm going to trap your models and put 2 to 1 on each of your guys and it's going to be a bloodbath. Yeah. Yeah, and and that is simple. That and that is a simple. T- it's not. It's not like a sort of uh, a, a sneaky trick. It's actually very obvious, isn't it? If you if you can wrap your guys around, you you're going to have a good chance of taking them. Yeah, and it's so easy to stop. All you have to do really is you can either put yourself a little bit back your line. So instead of going right up into your enemy's face and being an inch away from them, maybe sit four inches back. You can use terrain to anchor your flank. You know, a wall or a, even a wood, so they can't get round you. Or you can also do what I do often um, is curve your line so that it, the center is slightly further forward if you follow me. Hard to yes. explain <laughs> over a call. But yeah, and then you're, you're curving back so that your guys in your flank are slightly further away so that the enemy's standard six-inch infantry move won't be able to get round them. Ah, so you could so so you could either do a a D shaped um, or a, a C shape, I suppose, if you look at it. If, if you imagine your line is either bulbous in the middle or slightly, <laughs> um, yes, yeah. <laughs> slightly bulbous in the middle or or slightly kind of sagging in the middle, so that you can either wrap around with your edges or those edges are out of charge range, I guess. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's that's an interesting one because yeah, because I'd imagine in that that sort of circumstance, your opponent is thinking, well, I want to charge. I'm going to be charged by that front rank in the next turn anyway, and maybe I get bonuses for charging or whatever. But it, it gives them that decision. It ultimately leaves your opponent with a decision to make: Do I want to be countercharged, or do I want to be the one to charge? And maybe they have throwing weapons or whatever, and maybe they're thinking, oh, I might I might work out. But it, it's decisions, isn't it? And I suppose it's giving your opponent um, something more than just an obvious choice. Yes, yeah. I mean, and, that, and that's all it is. It's, it's a lot of uh, top players will kind of like dance around each other on the table almost. But yeah, you do have to accept that at some point 
you will get charged, and it's fine. It's absolutely fine. You know, you can survive a charge as long as you mitigate it. As long as you think about your heroes and think about your troops and how you position them, you'll be absolutely fine. Absolutely fantastic. And is is that your main movement tip, or have you got others? No, I'd say for the movement phase, like like I say, that is what I would normally see, and it makes me very happy as a player in a tournament because I'm like, well, I'm going to put my hero here, my hero here, wrap my troops around there, and this turn I'm going to kill ten models, yeah. and I'll be up. Yeah. So really think about just just think about you know mitigating mitigating it. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. that helps people. And I, yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those simple things is if you've got an opportunity at any point where someone has charged one person in and you can either, uh, and say there's a line of five people, right? And you've got five people as well. And they can only reach those, say, two in the middle. Um, and they've charged their two of uh, five or whatever into those guys. You don't need to engage the rest of that f- line of five. I hope I'm explaining this right. You no, could, yeah, I'm following you. Could yep. sort of, you can, so you can maximise rather than charging five one-on-ones you can go right actually i'll put these two in the edges as spear sports or whatever and then you've got your two guys that are fighting or five guys that are fighting those two and then you're you're doubling the chances of winning essentially or, or something like that anyway yeah yeah no i would do yeah i'd I would, I would, I would see my opponent's five and i'll put two on each flank and then yeah use the others maybe a spear sports or just go one-on-one on shield example to Absolutely. Yeah. And and as you say, it traps wins games, but it's also uh, doubling the number of dice that you can win the combat and therefore kill them in the end. So it, it's yep. simple, isn't it? But like you say, people do have this this kind of idea. I want to see these lines clash in a in a very linear fashion, which um, the more you play um, uh, SPG, the more you realise that's not how it works. And there's a reason for that. It's because each model can move individually. That means that you want them to all be engaging in different ways, which is which is one of the nuances and, and the pleasures of the game. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's the... The thing that you know you can pick up easily, but can take a while to master. Absolutely. Okay. So, so you mentioned shooting because I, I, I've I've thought for a long time, and lots of people I know who are very new to the game, um, sort of dismiss shooting almost because they think, oh, you know what? Uh, I, I know a guy who plays Lothlorien. Uh, shout out to Harry, um, who <laughs> plays Lothlorien, and he reckons, oh, like, I don't think there's much point having bows. I don't think I don't really like having you know six of my elf bows because they don't ever really kill much. All that sort of stuff. So. What would you? What tips would you give people for the shooting phase? I think the first thing people don't realise is that, yeah, you've got six elf of six elves of bows, but that doesn't mean they can't go into combat and fight like mm-hmm. any other troop. So um, it's one way to think of it. But uh, I think the shoot phase, my my top tip um, would be what you prioritise your shooting on. It, it's very tempting, isn't it, to pick up a load of dice and go, "I'm just going to mow down your front rank troops," but really. For the game, it might be better to prioritise all your shots onto that hero's horse who's hiding behind that wall because that hero and horse is probably what's going to tear you apart. Absolutely, and and you know, as we say in that example of uh, the sixth Lothlorien um, archers, you know, you've spent I don't know what is it two points for an elf bow, isn't it? So you spent yep. twelve points, haven't you, on on bows? Um, if you get two turns of shooting and you've taken out a horse for for a, you know 10 points for a horse on a big hero it doesn't sound like a, a big deal but that's that's halving the killing potential of that guy and that's well worth 12 points worth of bows i guess always is yeah always and yeah and i, I do think that this is something that, that people forget and but i actually your, your earlier point about um uh, about the the fact that bows are are, are normal They're, bows are people too that that sort of thing is <laughs> archers are people too they they can get involved i mean maybe you you shoot twice 
but then you really do want to get them in combat. I think that's the the trickiest thing. So how, how do you decide um, when when your bows engage in combat and when they stop giving up uh, and start giving up shooting? Oh gosh, I'm, <laughs> I, I I couldn't cover every situation, Harry. But um, it, it, it's just down to just down to using a bit of common sense and thinking about how the game's going. But normally you don't want to be more than two moves away from your line, I'd say. Yeah, that's, that sounds right to me. Because okay, And especially with the heart, maybe with one half move or something like that, if you've got an extra shot in. But I think it's, it's easier, I think, with good armies because good armies go, well, look, I'm not going to be able to shoot once the lines clash so that you can get stuck in. But I think sometimes with evil armies, you might be tempted to go, oh, I might be able to pick some off in combat, but get them stuck in. I, I'd say get them stuck in probably yeah. a turn earlier than you think. <laughs> yeah, especially with evil, because what you can do is you can bring them right up with you and you can shoot into combat, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't see a lot of evil players capitalize on that that are less experienced because that is also another great way to take out a hero's horse. When they're in combat, the only way is the combat itself. And if you hit your own troop and kill him, well, guess what? That hero is not heroic combat in anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. That that is definitely something that's so valuable. Is you know seeing Aragorn or or I don't know Elendil or or Thorin or something like that, who's who's just about to smash through your guys and, and he's charged one orc and you're like right okay take that guy out of there. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's something that um, that you feel kind of reluctant to do it when you're when you're really protective of your one orc but hoping on hopes that that guy that orc will valiantly destroy aragorn in combat is <laughs> is probably not a good idea no here's a dead orc walking <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and and i think shooting is one of those it's it is probably the trickiest because a lot of players i know that have have played um uh, play SPG uh, people who've played lots of other different systems and shooting in other uh, Warhammer and particularly in 40k you know shooting is the is the thing you know you spend you pour a bucket of dice on the table oh, yeah. and and take off dozens of models but it's not like that in Lord of the Rings no not at all thank well some armies but thank yeah. you <laughs> yeah I, I think you've played with the range of Athelion haven't you uh, Dave <laughs> I took him to a couple of events. I don't think I'll be doing it again. <laughs> no, I, I hope not. I hope not. I hope you never do that. Do it again. <laughs> but and th- that's a good point, though. Uh, so, so your point there, shooting is to is to make sure that you know when to shoot and uh, and what to target, which is, I think, yeah, absolutely right. Tar- targeting the the back rank of spears is pointless, especially if they've got a banner next to them or or something similar. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, the final sort of. Uh, phase of the game which you want to focus on is is combat yeah um it's pretty simple combat actually um even though it's the main part of the game and probably the funnest part of the game mm-hmm. um it's a it's a combo i see a lot of people doing i've used it myself and it does catch people out which is you put two heroes together harry and one of them calls a hurt combat and the other one calls a hurt strike mm. and when they're in range of something big, something like your opponent's general or their troll or, you know, any anything that they don't really always see coming because they're like, oh, you're Dernhelm. That can't do anything to my Frandral. And I did that on a Frandral, on Elk, mounted, lovely, with a sword and extra armor and all that, <laughs> and killed Frandral one turn. Ooh, brutal, brutal. So. Yeah. And, and I guess what's good about this one is it's one that, as you mentioned already, people aren't necessarily um, sort of looking out for. And it's also not necessarily something they can protect against because, you know, say say in that situation, Thrangel's there and, and uh, whatever, and you've struck. Um, with Dernhelm, you might end up going, well, actually, if, if Thrangel calls a heroic strike in the on the off chance that you do pull off that heroic combat and charge into him with Dernhelm, 
you might not bother because they've he struck, and then you go, well, actually, I might charge his Palace Guard or something like that that are uh, uh, that are a higher fight than me anyway, and they'll still get an advantage. Yeah, absolutely, and and that is my opponent didn't call to heroic strike; they tried to call to heroic combat to heroically run away. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, lost the roll off, but yeah, so. You're absolutely right. If they spend the might on Heroic Strike, you're winning anyway because their hero is not Heroic Combat and doing maximum damage that turn. Yeah, and this is one of those ones. It's it's almost an all all eggs in one basket situation, as you say. That I think newer players are. are sometimes more cautious uh, in the way they spend their might. I, I think. I try and think of an example in the sense sometimes when you call a heroic move, a newer player almost instantly goes, "Oh, if you're spending might, then I should spend might." And other times they're much more cautious in thinking, well, actually, I don't see where I, I don't have to spend might here because that's not connect. What you're doing there is not connected to what I'm doing, so I'll just leave it. And and I, I think spending those resources can be really tricky for newer players and and uh, and choosing when and you know you can really exploit that if you're a mean uh, more more uh, more practiced player. Yeah, and you know, especially if you've got more might than them, then you know you've got it to burn. Make them use up their might. Once they're out, you'll be able to control the battlefield. Yeah, and I suppose people like your, your Aragorns or, or whatever are, are perfect examples of that. If you've got an Aragorn and a Faramir or something like that in a, in a Gondor army, then that's a great moment to, to, to use your heroic slingshot strike thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting talking through these things because um, I guess when you're in a newer player or even a, a sort of more intermediate player, you, you maybe do these... Um, you, don't quite understand these things as much as a veteran player does but equally when you're a, a, a more experienced player you're not necessarily thinking about these things you just kind of do them was it was it difficult is it difficult coming up with these tips and tricks that I've asked you to do yeah as you know from our quite a pre-conversation yeah I, I, I did have to rack my brain not only because <clears> it's been a while since I played but yeah you're right I, I I don't think about them I just do them I go I I and that's normally when you lose a game, when you make a mistake and you forget to think of these things. But yeah, position of position of your troops in the move phase, and you know, prioritizing your bows into something worthwhile, and looking out for these heroic, sneaky heroic combat shenanigans in the fight phase. Yeah, it, you think of those things, but you you just do them automatically when you mm. keep playing and keep playing and keep playing. Absolutely, and and there are so many out there, and and I think what what I like about um, SBG is that these these things all interlock quite nicely, and and they all complement each other, and there's there's different synergies and different um, little, uh, I guess, sort of boxes you can tick to make these certain different combinations of things happen, and and the heroic combat heroic strike thing is a great example of that. That you have to do two, you have a choice to do two different things to make this one thing happen, but it can be really effective. Yeah, and. Going back to as well what we first said about you know asking for advice after the game. The opponent I played in that game was a lovely person, and they did ask my advice after the game, and I did tell them you know sorry I caught you out of that trick, but uh, you know like they, they took it on board, and I don't think they'll ever fall for it again. Which is unlucky for me and people who want to win games, but yeah, it's <laughs> well, good that they learn. Yeah, it makes it makes your opponents better, and I think that makes for better games generally. I mean, nobody really likes to just walk over and a, a new a newer player, especially because it's not fun. It's not fun if you're not presented with any tactical decisions to make on your side. If you're just completely trashing your opponent, then it's no it's no fun for anyone. But being presented with those decisions, going ooh, in that you know, if I was Thrandall in that situation, it's like ooh, do I heroic strike or do I heroic combat? Ooh, not quite sure what to do here. That's that's the fun bit. I think that's what I. Enjoy enjoy most about SPG is being presented with these kind of tactical decisions. Yeah, and uh, I know I'm probably as bad as anyone for, for losing and not thinking the positives of this, but if you can go out of a game and go, oh, have I just done that? And if, if I'd done this, 
I was actually doing all right everywhere else, and I, I could have done well. You know, obviously you still lost, but you were close, and you were learning, and you were doing better. Yeah, and and I think that that is something that's that's a good tip and trick anyway, isn't it? For for people to focus on the, what they've done well in a game, and you know, try and address the the little. Usually, it is only one or two mistakes that have lost you a game. I find uh, I certainly know I could think and you know I could count on uh, two hands the number of games I've lost by making one or two foolish decisions, but that they've lost me the game. Yeah, I think and maybe a lot of the top players will agree with me, is when you have two equally matched opponents or two equally good armies, it, it is going to come down to one thing here or one thing there, you know, because you're both going to be playing well, you're both going to be doing the right things. There's a term in tennis, unforced errors, isn't there? The uh, When yeah, the top two yeah. players are playing and you get like Roger Federer against uh, Djokovic or whatever and they, they, they tally it up and say, oh, look, Djokovic is in one unforced error in the whole game, and then you think, ah, oh, right. And, and it's the same in SBG that whoever makes the least mistakes in terms of tactics and, you know, all that sort of stuff, I guess, ultimately wins it out. Yep, absolutely agree. Absolutely. So, well, Dave, thanks very much for coming on. Um, I really appreciate the, uh, the the little sort of tips and tricks there. Um, and I guess for a uh, final tip for, for anyone who um, is starting or is sort of, you know, trying to get over that over that barrier, what would be the what would be the last kind of main advice that you would try and encourage people to take home with them? <laughs> now you put me on my toes. Um, I think it would be just to enjoy the game. So don't don't put too much stress on yourself like, oh, I have to be winning, I have to be doing better. Why is this army that someone says is really good not doing well? Just If you're enjoying the game, then go step by step. You know, Don't just try and go all in to be the best player that there ever has been because you might get disappointed. Yeah, be willing to learn. I think that's a great, uh, a great sort of idea, Dave. All right, well, thank you very much for, for coming on to Entmoot Podcast. Yep, thank you very much for having me, Harry. So there we go. That's Dave Clubley. Uh, amazing stuff there. Really interesting insight into just just a sort of the surface level, I suppose. So this is this is to get you from a, a beginner to an intermediate player. I would say this is this is the, some quite general practical tips that everyone um, maybe you know them, maybe you don't know them. But either way, even if you know them, they're really very useful tips to just just to focus on when you're playing these games. But what I asked um, Dave Farmer uh, to talk to me about is some specific tips and tricks that can be used, you know, with certain combinations of magic and uh, models. So I've had a bit of a chat with Dave Farmer as well. Let's dive into that conversation to find out more of these pro top table tips and tricks. Happy to be asked, really. I'm always keen to get involved with this sort of thing. You know. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Talking hobby, especially these times, it's it's harder to, to get time to talk about uh, a hobby and, and share the game. So yeah. uh, I'm glad to have you along. Um, for, for, first of all, I mean, I'm looking at the Great British Hobbit League's 2020 standings mm-hmm. and you're right up the top there. You're, you're uh, number six. And I know uh, the 2020 <laughs> um, is, uh, is, isn't yeah. perhaps the best, uh, best way of showing off people's skills. But um, you, you are a, a, a relatively competitive player. But um, like for people... Yeah, you're right. Sure. Uh, for people who've never encountered you before, never met you before, um, just give us a bit of a back, uh, hobby background. Um, how did you get into the game and, and what kind of gamer are, are you? Um, so I got into... I first My first ever GBHL tournament was um, 2015 uh, Longbottom Carnival. Uh, I, don't, I suppose, if you don't know if you remember that one, it's been cancelled for a little while now, uh, since 20... Ah. The last one was 2016, I think. Uh, the guy's running it... Uh, couldn't commit to running it every year anymore and it's one of the older ones i think uh from the gbhl but uh ali convinced me to go uh, ali king 
um, because he was trying to. I, I'd been I'd been a Warhammer fantasy player before uh, when obviously that around that time uh, was superseded by Age of Sigmar. I lost interest pretty much entirely. Mm. Um, I'd I'd all, I'd never been much of a gamer. I always had lots of like ambitions. Like I wanted to try this. I wanted to play the game, but also I'd never had the patience to finish such large armies. Um, so like I mean I, I don't know if you ever played fantasy, but it was always like you know two hundred models kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I, I remember during my youth, I, I I started armies about three different times and mm. pe- spent a sort of ages building and painting them, and then I had a game with them, and then didn't like the game every time. Um, <laughs> oh. Maybe I was just too young and I didn't quite get the nuances. Yeah. I think I'd love to have a go now. I think um, I I was really what I really liked was the wheeling movement system. You know, the pivoting yeah. and the big units. But the problem then is obviously you you spend like I mean I you'd have to put fifty models in a single unit, and I mean I. I've painted something like 50 models the last, well, 100 models maybe in the last year, which is, you know, will take me a long time. And also loads of, you know, the feeling of progress is part of what keeps me going. And a single unit doesn't feel like much progress, really, especially when you need like four of them. But anyway, yeah. so I had always liked playing and my, uh, Ali is a, a local, like a school friend of mine. So we, uh, we played together, uh, fantasy and, um, he was, uh, when the GBHL started up in earnest, he always liked the Lord of the Rings strategy battle game back in the day, and he tried to sort of get me to play it on a couple of occasions. And I did play it once or twice, and I thought, well, this is kind of neat, but I never really saw the competitive side of it, and I didn't really see the... Um, I didn't really get it, you know. It, it takes a bit of... Once you're... I think you have to get into it a little bit before that, but I, I you know, I loved Lord of the Rings, the movies and things and, and the books, um, but I, I wasn't, I never really connected the two. And then I went to one tournament, I played um, just whatever I happened to have. Uh, I had some high elves and I painted up some Rivendell Knights. I think back then they weren't the same faction, but I just allied them together because I needed an extra 200 points and the, the Rivendell Knight box was exactly 200 points with a captain and five knights. So nice. that was pretty handy. And it wasn't it wasn't any good. It was pretty crap. Um, I, in fact, I actually got um, spanked by um, oh, Tom, Tom Harrison. That was it. Right before he went... I later found out that was like right before he went to Nova and won it with the same oh, army. Right. Even. Um, so that's uh, my first ever event. I learned about Bolg and how horrible he could be. And I learned about... Uh, Thranduil's auto knocked down on a six, uh, which lost me all of my uh, all of my knights, horses, and things like that. So I got uh, uh, absolutely spanked, basically every game except for like one where I played against a guy with all fellowship. Oh uh, well, it, it's but it sounds like a baptism of fire. I mean, if you're already Alistair King, you know, top of the league, and he's uh, the uh, the sort of GBHL yeah. um, president or whatever whatever he's called, league coordinator, and then yeah. Tom Harrison of Palantir fame and yeah. the SBG magazine. So, so yeah, uh, quite quite a quite a, co- a couple of stars that yeah. you're playing against early on. But was... and, and I guess that from there on, you kind of fell in, fell down the rabbit. Yeah, I mean, I I the thing is, like, I remember after that tournament, I wasn't really sold, but for whatever reason, I was compelled to just. I can't remember why I ended up with a bunch of money that summer probably a birthday or something so i thought screw it i'll buy a mordor army and i bought three like 36 minor orcs um you know some characters uh a, tr- uh, a troll chieftain uh, you know, the shadow lord stuff like that and just sort of on a whim and then next year i just went to a bunch of events i mean i didn't really plan it i didn't even really i think is i didn't even really enjoy my first event that much but for whatever reason, I think just getting that, scratching that itch was quite important, that feeling of actually competing. And then mm. my, th- I think it was my third event was in a thousand point event and I came like seventh out of 24 or something. And that but that was when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm into this. I want to do well. I want to try and do well in the league. 
because I think um, the the actual competitive part of it is super important to me, my enjoyment. So the 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 painting is fun, but without the gaming, I probably wouldn't paint as much. I think there are plenty of people who are like that who 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 paint for the games. I mean, I'm a little bit like that. I I've always been I've always loved painting. I've always enjoyed the the process of it. But um, but I'm I'm naturally a kind of a, a painting butterfly. I'll, I'll flip between units and and stuff like that. But a tournament is a great way of of keeping on track of uh, of making sure I actually finish what I started. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I I painted a whole Rohan, not big Rohan army, but a whole Rohan army with Helm Hammerhand for the um the uh. What was it called? The Masters the, tournament. Yeah, wasn't the it? Masters. That was it. Yeah, uh, in at the end of February, um, I, I painted that all up. Um, and again, like I really, I get a lot of satisfaction out of finishing things. But I don't that satisfaction by itself without the then taking it to a tournament and looking at it all together and pushing them around the tabletop a few times. Yeah, that. Yeah. That's what makes it for me. Um, well. I, I think that's that. I, I, I think that's uh, quite common with a lot of people, and it, and it is. It is, and I've always said this about the hobby: that the, there's something great about the the that sense of satisfaction, especially in a, a modern world where you know we're there's, we're scrolling on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, TikTok or whatever the newest fangled thing is, and there's never never an end to these things. There's no, there's no end to it, and um, so it's just that hobby, if if you could call it a hobby of social media, goes on forever. Whereas painting something, it's a defined end. Playing a game, it's a defined end. There's there's a very specific, and there's something sat- satisfying about having, you know, achieved something. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because it, it, I found it actually goes both ways. So if I if I cheese out an army and come up with something horrible that I then either borrow models for, or have to hack them out and I'm not happy with them, then I sort of feel like when I if I then don't go on and do really well or compete or finish you know top ten or something, I then feel like I've sort of let myself down a little bit. It's like a double satisfaction thing. If I've painted up and I'm really happy with my models, that even if I kind of um, fail at a tournament, you know, obviously, like I almost always go to a tournament with the intention of trying to win, mm. and obviously that, you know, I don't win a lot. But as long as I I finish well, I'm happy. But if I've taken a really overpowered army that I think I, you know, I had to borrow a bunch of models off whoever to make it work, I then feel a bit hollow like oh I've, I've tried to win so hard and i don't even have the satisfaction of having the models afterwards you know so that's that's it it's, i don't know it's, it's like both sides of that for me like i i think that's yeah that's completely <laughs> fair and, and i know there's 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 plenty of people who do swap and change and and borrow people's armies and, mm. and stuff like that, Not um, that there's anything and i know that. i know i've definitely felt uh more more i suppose worse i suppose i felt worse when i thought oh, okay i'll try and take something better and in the hope that i'll do better yeah. and then more often than not, i don't <laughs> so wow. so then you think oh well actually i've sacrificed uh sacrificed that for you know for the sake of yeah. it but, but it, it happens it, i like but i like that the point there is there there is two sides of the coin yeah i mean it's it's interesting to me because again i i'm definitely thinking of myself more as a competitive player than 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 um than some i guess uh I really like building interesting lists, and so I was always a little bit like not sure about how I felt about uh, with the new edition, everything becoming much more um, different. So I'm I'm not really someone who loves that kind of uh, you might call it a uh, a Polish style of uh, everything must work, you know, the the Matt Light uh, Shadow Lord and Spider Queen kind of thing. I don't really like that, but I am interested yeah. in it as well. Like I like yeah. to try and come up with interesting, unique combinations. If they're if they're thematic or at least a green alliance, then that feels really rewarding. Um, specifically, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm almost... I, I'm definitely a thematic player and I prefer playing thematic armies, but but equally I'm not one of those players that, that sort of will, um, yeah. will chastise anyone who brings those, hmm. those slightly odd combinations because I think it's better for the game having that sort of stuff in there. I think it's really exciting to see a combo that you didn't think of. Like, I think a lot about this game, probably more than people might might think like i mean obviously not so much for the past year because it's a bit it feels a bit unfulfilling to think about it when i'm not actually able to play but True. when i'm thinking about it I, if i see a combo like i mean it, obviously it's not super inspired but jasmine's army for the gt the good army with the fountain court and boromir and hurin and uh, lady of light yeah it sounds kind of cheapy and easy on paper but just it wasn't something i'd really considered and i find that super fascinating like just because people think differently about this game and seeing new tactics like i actually came up with an army recently that i really really am excited to try um Mm -hmm. that uh was based off something that i saw at the gt and i think the person who i i can't remember who it was now someone had a combo army it was minas tirith and and rohan and i remember thinking that was extremely unoptimized version of something that i really liked which was um uh, you can't do it so easy so much anymore but using basically just allying and gambling and using gambling's infinite might essentially with an extra like one might hero so either Aldor or Haleth or Merry I mean you used to mm. just do it with all of them but just having one you get infinite heroic moves straight away from the bat like you've got an Aragorn on your side it's, it's really valuable yeah. and that combined with uh, various I mean Rohan a green alliance with like four armies right so there's so much potential there to, to ally in gambling and I feel like that's something I'd like to explore properly. That's interesting, yeah. And and I can sense you're sort of you're, you're getting really excited about this. This just this the, the, the as you say the the kind of combinations and yeah. the the intrigue and all the different the ways the ways the puzzle fits together, exactly. which is which is absolutely fascinating. And <laughs> and I think that's why why so many of us enjoy the game so so much, and especially at the mm. competitive level. I suppose everyone who's competitive at any war game is the same. But uh, it mm. does feel um, it does feel like it's got lots of opportunities for for things like that. Yeah, so, and sure. um, with that in mind, um. The reason I got you on today is to talk about very specific strategies. And um, we spoke to uh, Dave Clubley already um, in the podcast about uh, sort of almost more a more general approach to tactics or or specific moves that you can have in the game. And and I get, essentially, I, this is I guess we're pitching this at anyone who who's played the game, you know, a good dozen or so times, and they've or maybe they've been to a few, couple <laughs> of tournaments, and they've they've sort of got a strong a firm grasp on the rules, mm. and they know how the game works, and they can build decent army lists, but their playing skills, i.e. my playing skills, uh, are, are dropping behind. And and I suppose I'm keen to know what little tips and tricks or what little fancy moves you have um, that perhaps just push you above or push push a player above um, a certain level. So so I've got you on for that reason. And I know you've got a few things you want to talk about. So do you want to just dive into the first one? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this as well. Um, so when, when battle lines kind of connect, sometimes you can really take advantage of when enemies get like uh isolated you know when you when you think about two two battle lines coming together you think like probably front line and spears maybe a hero or two dotted in yeah maybe there's a couple of like cavalry heroes running around on the flanks or whatever but they're not in the line when if if people do get separated in the line there's a real one thing that i love to do is when you've got it's even better with more heroes but you can do this with any number of heroes and troops you can uh, 
this is often more effective later in the game as well, but if you get loads of stuff onto, when you do a heroic combat, getting the most bang for your buck by using spear supports, by charging with them, and and then when you do heroic combat, you can like spread out and basically improve your odds everywhere on that side of the on that side of the fight. So, for example, imagine you've you've pushed through and or one of their models has gotten uh, separated from their line has been pushed sort of forward by having to back away in a funny way, and you can get lots of your spear supports and a hero onto it. Uh, it can often be a really advantageous moment to basically redistribute all of your spear spearmen and also. Or you know, or you can charge with them, or you can do anything with them because as long as it's within their movement range, your heroic combat can uh, can uh, redistribute all your models essentially. That's a really interesting because I've heard uh, lots of different tips and tricks with <laughs> um, with heroic combats um, before, and you know, loads of different things about you know striking and sending someone and bulging someone as as the Green Dragon would call yeah. it, or, or any, any of these different tricks. But actually, you, you're quite right. Just throwing a few extra guys into a combat, a it, it helps make sure that, yeah. that you know that heroic combat happens, but also, like you say, it, it does mean that you get maybe an extra couple of inch moves or, yeah. or, or whatever uh, once it comes off. Well, another That's a really intriguing idea. Another thing people often seem to forget, especially at the sort of lower levels, uh, people you don't have to charge when you do heroic combat, and heroic combats can sometimes be like I mean I've won games off of heroic combat and then just running six guys into the middle of the board, for example, on hold ground. Yeah. Um, I mean that you know kind of goes without saying, but you know you don't have to charge. You can just run guys away for example you can run away well, make some make some space and recon and then to just run away that way yeah absolutely i know i, I I'm, I'm trying to think who i was playing against mm. but i can think of an example of uh, uh, I, I won a fog of war game exactly by doing that by heroic combat i think it was i was using the fellowship mm. of the ring at the time and i'd heroic combated uh boromir off something and into the the terrain i needed to capture and and it and it swung the the game which is yeah. which is important and and i know there and there are often there's some heroes like thorin or or elendil who have free heroic combats yeah that, you can even be even more sneaky yeah. with, for example, um, sending say if you've got a, a, a line of Numenorians with a sealed or, or Elendil or whatever, and, and Elendil sat there and he can just move. Say you're, you're six inches away from, or eight inches away from the opponent, they can't charge you. But you can send Elendil in, hit one guy, heroic combat, and pop back into the line. So yeah. you just <laughs> chip away. Those sorts of things yeah. can be um, can be things that perhaps aren't what you expect from a heroic combat, but but are definitely great ways of using it. Yeah, and. It, it's a very it's a, probably one of the most effective individual moments you can have in a game is the heroic combat i think um because the, the game is generally won or lost on combat more than anything right the most models yeah, die during combat you know if you've got a normal amount of shooting you know we're not talking rangers at small points or anything like that if you've got a normal amount yeah. of shooting it's pretty rare that you're going to be able to do any significant damage to your opponent's army at about 700 points you might kill like five models on a very on like a good pretty strong shooting but you're not going to make the difference once the the lines come together i mean it can obviously give you an advantage but once the lines come together it's all about combat so if you can make your heroic combats count for more if you can make combats happen in a effective way that really benefits you then you're in a really good position um like i mean this is a trick that i know ali uses a lot I, i think he's he's been extremely influential on how I play because when we lived, I mean, when we lived, when I lived with my parents and we played against each other and basically only each other when we weren't at tournaments, 
Um, <laughs> I, I bet, you know, he was better than me. He, he probably still is better than me. I, I don't think that's that controversial. Um, but he, the way he plays, like I've sort of picked up his style of play in a very noticeable way, or at least when I think yeah. about it now, because when I think about what he does and what, and like how I play, I, I, I sort of try and I, I've, I've, you know, I've been the victim of his style enough that I sort of emulate it without even thinking. And what, what trick is that that you're thinking of? Well, I was thinking that specifically the correct combat thing. He does that a lot, and also mm. and and uses it to redistribute. So I'm thinking recently we played on Tabletop Simulator. I don't know if you've given that a go yet. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, yeah, it's it's functional. It's a bit. I don't think I'd want to play very competitive games with strangers on it, but it's you know it's. When you're playing with a friend and, you know, you you both respect each other already, you know, you, there's no sort of questions. I think it's quite good. You know, you don't have to wor- yeah. worry too much, as long as you're not worrying too much about the minutiae of measurement and whatnot, because it's yeah, pretty yeah, difficult absolutely. to do that. But anyway, he, he uh, used, was trying an army list on that and did essentially... Uh, one of my, uh, one of my uh, models was carelessly placed on a flank and he was able to charge mounted two two mounted heroes into it and then wrap around my line like that in a way that i hadn't uh anticipated uh or and it was so as a result of like trying to stop him from coming around my flank too easily i had essentially given him the easiest way around my flank so <laughs> the uh and and, yeah. and and it's similar i'm um, just just before we move on to the next and um, her, uh, heroic combat I, I can remember a distinctive one which i uh, I think I've already mentioned on the podcast um, uh, with Dave earlier on, but mm-hmm. I'll just reiterate it for, yeah. f- for you and, and for listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Ryan Hinch, uh, I was playing against him once. He had an Angmar army, and um, I out I had outnumbered him pretty much with dwarves, uh, Iron Hills, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Grimhammers and stuff. Um, but obviously, his uh, he, he had lots of big, powerful heroes, and he did a, a heroic combat with a Witch King and took out two guys and just jumped over the line took out two guys and jumped back. And then in one fell move, uh, literally, um, in the case of the fell beast, um, he'd, he'd made made sure that he was now outnumbering me, which was, uh, you know, important in terms of lining up guys, but also that, you know, he'd, he'd taken out two of my higher strength, higher defense heroes, so uh, a troop. So, you know, there's so many things there that I thought, well, you know, usually a, a, a witch king or a fell beast would, would then smash into something else. But he was very confident. He did the move, killed the two guys, moved back behind his lines and was played it very safely. So mm-hmm. heroic combats, absolutely, they can be used in so many different ways. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant. Okay, um, well, let's move on to something else because um, you, you've mentioned in the little uh, comments you said sent to me um, that you've got atypical movement. Now, what what does what do you mean by that? That's one of the um, things you sort of suggest as a trick. Well, any any model that has any kind of movement advantage, like being super aware, you can. Like, uh, I was thinking specifically. Um, so you know, for example, elves all have woodland creature, and woodlands yeah. woodlands generally like the the Games Workshop woodland has like that the the base on the bottom um, that is a difficult terrain. So half movement. So there's yeah. so much, and also quarter movement for cavalry, which is another thing. So any yeah. anytime you have an advantage, uh, a terrain kind of advantage, you can be doing so much with it. So I was recently playing with Shelob as well because I was using I was using the Kirithungal Legendary Legion, and Shelob has spider movement, which means that she can move over anything as open terrain, or like, you know, including impassable things. So you can all. It's very easy with Shelob to get get on a flank or to get at a hero that may have otherwise been. Un, unachie- unachievable especially with the 10 inch mm. movement as well and other things so um a big one for this fimble 
uh, has completely open cavalry movement for any terrain as well. Uh, yes. Or fleet foot riders. Uh, Thranduil can do this. Um, and the new uh, Wildman of Druid and Legion with the Rohan little marker thing. Yeah, see, well. I really like that Legion. Um, I've no yeah. idea how it would play, right. because but <laughs> looking at it, I'm really sort of keen to try it. Only issues. So am I. I've, I've got the army <laughs> built and ready to go. It's just there haven't been any damn places to play well, it. <laughs> also, I mean, I love the, the, the roll-off advantage as well. I think exactly, that, yeah, that yeah. feels like it could be super influential over the course of a tournament. That that. Averages, Absolutely. especially given how important they are for cavalry. But anyway, so I think that any any ability to where you can take advantages. So normally infantry movement six, elves, you can then be slightly further or you can be in range while also out of range, which anytime you can engineer that situation where you're in range or you're out of, uh, while also being unreachable uh, is super important because, I mean, you can then take advantage of uh, opponents being basically being forced to make difficult decisions like do they either have to run towards you or run away but then if you're shooting them it's like are we is this actually something that you want to do anytime you can make their decision making hard sorry yes yeah, so i was just going to say no it's fine and um, if you you're in say in some woods or, or you can go through some woods very quickly they either have to go through very slowly or go around the uh, thing and divide up that's a great great sort of thing and, and actually, I think um, in a similar sort of vein, and um, maybe a bit sort of sneaky, uh, sneakier with the um, the models that have a longer move than they appear to have. So like your Urukai scouts that move eight or your uh, Nolduin exiles who move eight and um, those sorts of things that, that perhaps you, you say, obviously, and you, you're always saying, yep, these are Nolduin exiles, these move further and you're always moving them further or whatever. But but people sometimes get it, especially if in the heat of a game, they might not remember that that's got an eight inch move. And that sounds a mean thing to do, but it's almost kind of you're exploiting the fact that you've got a model that, that moves faster than they're yeah. expecting. Well, I mean, especially Uglux Scouts, actually, because a lot of the time when you've got Orcs and Urukai, you're going to have to keep the keep the Urukai, like the, keep the brakes on slightly so that you don't just completely outpace your uh, your Orcs. But the, the, then when you do get to combat, you're suddenly finding that you're getting surrounded much easier than normal because the Urukai actually go a lot further. Like once the combat starts, eight inch movement becomes drastically more valuable, I think. Yeah, you can really wrap around, and that—that that is one of the advantages of that that legion. Even though you haven't got the spears, you can you can get that free uh, uh, upgrade, can't you? That that makes it so much powerful oh, on the Lurts one. Sorry, on the Lurts uh, uh, Lurts legion. And um, well, that that's really cool. So yeah, atypical movement, a really nice idea. And um, <laughs> and one of the one of the other ones you've mentioned, and um, this is about magic. And magic's a tricky one, obviously, because there's so many different um, spells and abilities. But uh, you've chosen this very specific one to uh, to bring up, which um, is a really smart one, actually. Uh, Jordan, talk me through this one. Then. Okay, well, I, I specifically have found Sorcerer's Blast uh, used to be fairly infamous back in the day before the uh, the new edition because you could just basically knock down like you know six or seven models every turn with it and it was you know yeah. pretty hideous especially on uh you know mounted wizards who can get into good positions whereas now it only hits two targets although there's so many this it's such a versatile spell still there's a few things that people don't think of when you offer sorcerer's blast as a spell for a start you can use it to dismount heroes so uh you can play i mean like this is something that this gives me such a headache. If I'm facing a Sorcerer's Blast and I don't know... If I, if I know that they're a good player and they're going to try and dismount my heroes, then I'm 
you know, my head is already stressing. But if I don't know what they're planning with it, it's even worse sometimes. You're thinking, because mm. I, I don't know where to put, for example, if I put my my hero my out front, he's vulnerable to being compelled. But your sort of instinct to put them behind things is also thwarted. Because if you Sorceress Blast a, a troop, then they can't resist it. And then if you Sorceress Blast a troop that happens to be in front of someone on a horse, then odds are very good unless you roll rubbish for your distance which obviously occasionally happens you know if they're behind their army line you just pick a spearman blast him straight into him and suddenly Boromir's on his foot on his feet and he's not able to rip your army uh you know a new one which is something that he otherwise probably would and likewise That's, actually sorry yeah, likewise no, no, the biggest thing with sorceress blast i've always found that always throws people is you can kill banners with it very easily if your banner is in the back rank and it isn't surrounded by guys i blast your banner it's no longer in contact with anybody and then when it dies which you know with a strength five hit it's pretty you know the decent chance especially if you're willing to drop a might point on it in a scenario where banner advantage is important then you know it's it's really easy to just guarantee it that that's a really good point, and and also um, even if it doesn't go off, you've uh, and you know you don't kill it, you've you've pushed your a banner back three or four inches, and it's on the floor, so it's it's out of the way. So so yeah, it's it, that's that's a, that's a really good idea. And uh, sorcerer, as you say, sorcerer's blast. I think it's um, uh, it is one of those ones that I think before people people did use it as a in the Hobbit era, it used it more of as a kind of a, offensive weapon. Whereas now it's very much more. It's rather than being a sort of a, a hammer with which to strike your enemies, it is more like a scalpel to to actually extract very specific things from the army list and and uh, it it is quite hard when you've got a, ma- a magician say you're you coming up against Gandalf or, or Saruman and um, they have so many different spells to throw at you that that just the mind games of having a, a model like that in your army can can do wonders uh, against the right player yeah I'm I'm obsessed with uh, Saruman the White from Isengard I love that profile it's just a shame it's so so many points um, yeah, I'd be very surprised if I don't figure out some way. If if I go to a larger point tournament, I don't figure out some way of using him because I just I used to use him back in the day when I used to run hobbits. I used to use good Saruman when he was really undercosted, um, and yeah. I I just love the profile. I love Saruman. I love Christopher Lee. All that stuff, you know. So I really yeah. want to want to get a chance to get him out there and uh, bothering people with him. Uh, I have a I I have a real knack for winning contest of champions with Saruman. Oh well, that that that's doing well then. To be fair, and 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 he comes with Grimmer as well. And Grimmer is one of those ones that I and hasn't haven't seen very much at all um, in the new edition. Maybe it is because, as you say, Saruman's very expensive, and and I think there's so many other great options for Uruk at the moment. But but Grimmer is is so good, and especially with so many Rohan armies out there. Yeah, <laughs> it's he's like, why not? Well, he's he's something I would definitely consider if I could find the twenty five points. The only issue is like I I think once you've got Saruman as well, like. It used to be he used to be pretty much a no-brainer in a sense, but then everything's gotten more expensive, and you think maybe I'd rather have a Crabane, or mm, maybe yeah. I'd rather have um, maybe I'd rather have an, a banner if I don't already have one, you know that kind of stuff. I think I'm just someone who's a- addicted to having high numbers as high numbers yeah. as possible. So I think the idea I could drop to you know two guys for or two and a half or maybe even more if I was using wild men you know I, I just feel like I'm I'm someone who will look at that and say well I'll have five wild men of Dunland instead 
See, I think uh, for for me, I, I agree. I like the the theme of it, but also I think if you have a have a grimmer, um, you can afford to have uh, under Saruman, obviously, that you can afford to have fewer big hitting heroes. You could have maybe maybe some Urukai captains and and stuff because you've got the immobilizer, so you don't have to worry as much about strikes, and and you've got grimmer stopping people spending as much money on uh, point uh, might on strikes. So I, I could I could see it working. I could see it be, yeah. being quite fun. Well, um, go on. I was going to say with the addition of Gorolf. Uh, you don't. Uh, Gorolf oh, yeah. is such a valuable small for a small hero. He is absurdly good value, seventy points, <laughs> and he can go toe to toe with any any hero because he's got his free heroic defense. And if you have Saruman as well, you just he's so good value. He can chop troops. He does it all. Best hit. Best Absolutely. new profile. I think he may be my favorite profile that uh, that the new team have come up with uh, since uh, the original books came out. I just by far the coolest and more, most interesting profile. As here, oh well, kind. that's that's high praise indeed, I, I, and I, I, it's hard to disagree with. And um, Dave, I, I don't know whether you had any other final tricks to to mention that that you're really eager to do. But um, I know I, I just I wanted to just mention because you're you're known for uh, playing hobbits a lot and having spears mm. uh, with your hobbits. Um, yeah. are there, are any any tips relating to to you know getting over the sort of small movement of the hobbits or anything like that? I mean, I've always found. I mean, even in the new editions, I've I found that hobbits. Um, they're not, they have the opposite thing we were talking about earlier with the movements and wrapping around. Hobbits struggle to wrap around, uh, but four inches is you know it's a solid amount of movement. The idea is hopefully you don't have to you don't have to move so far. I think the, the the thing that always I always find hard with hobbits is the fact that their bases are the same size as everyone else. Like it feels like they should have like somehow some magical slightly smaller base or something that you can get more people <laughs> in. But um, no, I, I think. Um, I think just don't try and outrun your opponent and make sure you don't cock up deployment because every time I've cocked up deployments with hobbits, I'm like, I, I've massively re- regretted it because it's so unforgiving. If you don't if you don't plan properly at the start, you won't be able to rectify it for like... And is that... Is that a, a, that? I guess that's a pretty universal tip and uh, yeah, tip true, for, yeah. for people as well. Is is deployment is one of those things that often I think, uh, especially newer players, they're just keener to to get everything on the table and get cracking. Yeah. When actually, uh, there's so many so many mistakes mm. can be made. And uh, absolutely, that I I actually thought I actually identified that as a weak point of my game recently. Well, well, I say recently it was, would have been the beginning of the pandemic. Sometime it was after the GT. <laughs> I found out that. I sort of thought about this. I, I'd realised I was losing a lot of first games of tournaments and I was trying to think, figure out why. And I realised it was because I was being really slapdash with my deployment on the first game because I'd just arrived, you know, I'd been driving, maybe we'd got up at like five in the morning because it was a two and a half hour drive or something to Nottingham or whatever. And I was, you know, I'd, I hadn't had time to sort of figure myself out, get myself right. I'd been given a table and I'd just, just you know, blurry eyed, thinking about coffee sitting down and just throwing models on the table. And then later in the tournament, I got a lot better. But the first game was always a big issue. I think um, really paying attention to that and trying to be careful and focused on, you know, actually focusing on the first game's deployment really helped me out a lot or, you know, will help me well, out, I suppose I should say. I think it will help a lot of people out, actually. And and Dave, I, I really appreciate that. And yeah. well, well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's oh, been it's been really be interesting here. hearing your perspective, and um and definitely definitely well, uh, lots of food for thought there. Uh, so much appreciate it, Dave Farmer. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Oh, no, thank you very much for having me. 
Dave Farmer there, master of hobbits and elves, uh, who actually features on the very first episode of Entmoot, and who I uh, got very lucky against with Sauron and uh, the Felbeasts, uh, the Ringwraith uh, on Felbeast and the Witch King on Felbeast. Um, I got a little bit lucky against him. He just could not catch a break in that original game. But it's great to hear they uh, in the first uh, first episode all the way back. Um, God, February 2018 or something like that, wasn't it? Uh, okay, so now let's move on to another top table player I mentioned earlier. Uh, Jasmine has been on the podcast many, many times. Um, she's been a doubles partner to me at Ardacon and at other places, I believe. Uh, she's also um, played against me a number of times. I think we had two or so, uh, so games uh, that have been recorded on the podcast. We've also uh, made some videos as well on the interwebs. We had a bash at the first couple of scenarios from Gondor at War. So if you want to have a look at um, the Battle Games in Middle-Earth YouTube video, then head on over there and you'll be able to watch uh, watch us uh, have a bit of a go at some of the scenarios. And um, she's got a very analytical mind about how some of those scenarios work as well, which is great fun. Uh, so uh, delve into those. But I asked, in a similar vein to Dave uh, Farmer, I asked, I asked Jasmine, I want some tips, I want some tips and tricks to improve my game. Let's see what the second place person in the GBHL thinks are the best tips and tricks to just elevate your game that little bit more. Let's dive into the start of the conversation. Hi. Hi, it's nice to have you back, Jasmine. I mean, I'm trying to think of how many times you've been on the podcast. It's probably um, in excess of four or five times now. Uh, you've been doubles partner, we've played against each other, and you've won tournaments uh, that I have interviewed you at. So uh, it's nice to have you back, uh, even in this kind of socially distanced, um, nice way. It's always a pleasure, and it's nice to have something to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the reason I've got you on is because you are riding high in the uh, GBHL at the moment, and I need top-tier players um, to basically give me advice and give uh, all of our lovely listeners uh, out there advice about, I suppose, upping your game. Um, so uh, I, we spoke to uh, Dave Clubley earlier, and as it turns out, speaking to Dave Clubley, um, he, he he reckons he's second in the GBHL at the moment. But um, as you, we've just been talking off air, and you've you've informed me that that you're higher up than him because some results haven't yet been installed, although they may well be by the time the podcast is out. And um, you're second in the league, is that right? I think so. I think it's just the one tournament, which is the only tournament played since March. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of the season to go because we've basically got a whole year yeah. if we get back to it soon. I think, yeah, and, and by the time we get back to tournaments, fingers crossed that they happen sooner rather than later, um, obviously safety and all that, um, but it will probably end up being roughly a year um, exactly because there'll be some, there'll be roughly the same sort of gap in the middle, hopefully. Um, but anyway, uh, at the moment, you've, you've uh, looking at the, the, the league, you've won the, um, the Games Workshop Grand Tournament. Uh, you came second or third in Ripon. Um, and and you won this um, or, or came relatively highly in the the masters and um, uh, commanders or was it the the September one? Sorry, at, at, um, at Seventh City Gaming. Uh, yeah, so it was the seventh. Uh, the Seventh City one in September. So I think I finished. Yeah, Ring, third. Rings of Men. I think it is yeah. or something like that. Um, so yeah, so you've you've riding high and uh, what basically I want. Uh, I've, we've spoken already to Dave and Dave, um, and I, I was sort of saying that. I, I'm one of those players that I, I, I have a fairly good grasp on the rules. I understand the rules, certainly when I'm away from a game anyway. Um, maybe in the heat of the moment, I'm a bit worse. But 
I, I feel like I, I have a strong grasp on the rules, but I think something that I need those tips and tricks to just elevate me um, to above the level that I'm currently playing at if I want to really, really compete. And not necessarily wanting to compete, but I think some of these tips and tricks could be really useful. And I've challenged you to come up with some things that you think, you know, these little tips and tricks that maybe make your gaming just that little bit better and you know a little bit more top tier so um first of all i mean is this an easy thing how have you have you struggled to uh, to do the challenge or was it relatively easy i think the biggest thing about tips and tricks is that it's not necessarily knowing the tips and tricks of your army which i would say probably most people do it's knowing of all the armies and i think that is why no new players instantly come in and win tournaments like we have good players come in but you don't see them do well straight away because they just don't know all those little nuances Mm, that's a really good point and I I think the number one on my list of those sorts of people is Matt Light and because he's an incredibly good player he knows what he's he's talking about Um, and last year he he came into the league and he you could tell when you played him he knew exactly how to do things in his his game but then sometimes he would be like oh I didn't know that did that and then that would be where his game was undone yeah I mean he's he's a classic sort of example of you could see he clearly was going to be a great player but it's just he didn't have that experience and for anybody wanting to get better it's just going and playing as many tournament games as you can because that's where you're just going to play all these different kinds of armies and the first time you see something come up you'll go oh okay but then if you remember it for the next time either for your own army or for the army that you're up against that will massively improve your game Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned that most people know their own armies. That's one of the main tips and tricks as well. I mean, I'm, I'm really bad for not not giving myself enough time to really focus in on one army, mainly because of the podcast, if I'm honest, that I, I uh, swap and change things just because I want to try something different. And I, and, and I think it'd be nice for you uh, to hear something different as well. So I, I'm not exactly well well trained on my own army sometimes, but knowing your own army is, is the start, isn't it? And actually playing a good few games with it so you can work out some of its strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, obviously, some people uh, take longer to get to know their armies. um, And some players will always do better given the same army. And I think there's you can see people out there in the league that you always see take the same army and just scale it up and down points. And then other people that find it a bit more easy to adapt. But Mm. the key thing is, it's just knowing the better you know your army, the, the better you'll do. And 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 I suppose that that part of the, the the great thing about tournaments is that that just chance to play you know six or seven people or maybe five or six seven people in uh, over a, a course of a weekend over a course of a number of games. So you 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 might pick up a a lot more about your own army and b a lot of different armies to to test it against to find out um, what other what other things do I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's just getting that sheer variety and just playing as many different armies as you can. Because there's some armies that just play like really strange. For example, the Nazgul of Dol Gudor. The first time you play them is certainly going to be an interesting game. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you're just like, what? I don't know what's going on here. I, I did. Um, uh, I think it was War in Reading. I took uh, Nazgul of Dol Gudor with some of the Castellans of Dol Gudor, and a number of the people I played against were like, okay, so those Castellans, what do they do, and what what do the the, the ring raids do? Hold on, how are they different? They look similar, and and it was very confusing. And I actually felt a little bit bad for some of the players because, um, although I didn't win many of my games, they were like they were just so confused by what was going on. Yeah, but they um, they'll have learned from the experience, and they'll have enjoyed a different type of game as well. 
Yeah, exactly. And that, that is one of the pleasures of a, of a tournament is even if you, you might end up bumping up against a couple of, I don't know, riders of Theoden or a couple of uh, a legendary um, kings, uh, or, you know, the Return of the King legendary legions, um, you, you'll play a few different things and that's that's part of the pleasure of it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Right. OK, so let's get on to your tips and your tricks. So um, you've got kind of a list of a few things here. And, and I've asked for you to be a little bit more specific than um, than Dave, uh, Dave Clubley earlier on. Um, he was he was much more kind of general in his outlook of uh, tips and tricks. I asked him to, to give us an idea a bit about each of the phases of the game. And Dave Farmer's kind of delved into that a little bit more in more detail. But I want you to kind of talk about some specific models. So, so what have you got? What what have, what sort of things should we be looking out for when we're playing a game? Okay, well, the first one I've got, um, and this one involves either spectres, sentinels, or um, anything else. The, being able to move an opponent's model is really, really powerful. Um, and not only doing that to set up plays for like combat, etc., but actually taking out key victory point targets that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get so for example banners um if you can move a banner out of base contact with another model using your first ability um so let's say your specter moves a moves a banner and you don't even have to move them far it could just be if your opponents hemmed them in quite well just literally out of base contact so they can't pass it on and then with another model uh use fire blast black dart anything that's going to potentially kill it, um, you have that ability to just instantly take out of their banner. And people might have thought they protected their banner well and thought, oh, okay, well, my banner can't be got out, it can be passed on. Um, like they might, for example, have put a couple of models around the back to protect it from something flying. But if you can just move it, and this is probably an example of literally where moving a millimeter is potentially all you need mm. um it allows you to instantly take out that target which would get them victory points at the end of the game i'm going to latch onto the word there millimeter because the millimeter is really important here because more often than not in, it, and this is this is very much in very competitive games like where your millimeters do actually make a big difference and um say for example you have like you say you've got a banner that's maybe just slightly behind um, the the rank of spears and you've got those two people you mentioned that are basing in base contact to protect it all it needs is literally as you say one millimeter forward and then it's not touching anything and that is that is a big deal isn't it that that one millimeter and it's one of those things that's a little tricky to to get your head around when when you kind of you're not thinking about the minutiae of movement um that if you're perhaps a newer player you, you're not thinking about something like a millimeter making a difference but it really can yeah i mean i think most people would start to learn if they're relatively new that oh i need to always make sure my banner is in base contact and they might think they're doing a really good job and in most scenarios that would be absolutely fine and then this is just that that next level where just being in base contact with one model isn't necessarily going to be good enough. And yeah. the, the combo can be relatively cheap. So you're talking, what, Cardish and a basic ring wraith for less than 130 points. It's mm. not going to take a lot of resources and just that instant ability to gain that advantage at the start of the game. Yeah, and and it doesn't need to be a, a fire blast or a black dart. It could be you know a, a, a squadron of elves firing bows through a couple of ranks or something like that. It, it it could be it could be anything. You know, if you say if you've got a Lothlorien army, it could be the the sentinel or or whatever moving it out or Galadriel moving it out, and then a load of elves just 
twinging 20 or 15 or whatever <laughs> arrows in and ho- and eventually getting through and um, all it takes is two turns of that and you've got a banner dead i suppose um so it could it doesn't have to necessarily be magic that does the does the killing yeah exactly um but any, anything that mo- i mean arguably spectres and sentinels are some of the most powerful models in the game because it's not even like it's a half move it's a full move mm. and that's really powerful for a model that is really cheap. <laughs> and they're up to a full move, aren't they? Both, both of those, the the magic and the and the sentinel. You don't have to move the full six inches. So in that instance where where there is the, just the gap between the lines, it, it could be as simple as going, well, all I need to do is move it this this fraction of a centimetre and then, then you know, jobs are good. Yeah, exactly. And actually, the shooting thing's a, a good point because you actually... That was going to be my next point. So oh, you can I do apologize. <laughs> well, not so it's the shooting, but it's not just uh, your traditional pull something out and then shoot them. It, this one relates to siege engines. Ah. So it's a case of if somebody has put something within scatter range so that it can scatter onto it, if you can just move that model away and therefore the scatter, you're then going to hit the target that you want on a two to six instead of just a six yeah this this is probably something if you've not encountered um siege engines often in the game i mean i've i've done a video on my youtube channel if you want to learn more um about three trebuchets but um the yeah so essentially if you shoot shoot your trebuchet or your your ballista or whatever and you hit your four and then you roll a dice and on a one it misses completely or hits your own people uh, on a two to five it uh, scatters three inches usually onto uh, a, a, a sort of model of your opponent's choosing and six it hits directly so most of the time you're hitting that that thing that your opponent's choosing and if your opponent's canny they'll put one full guy th- three inches away from everything so that your your ballista or whatever always hits that one guy or well you know most of the time hits that one guy um but yeah i suppose if you if you just go either push that one guy back in with your um with your ballista shot, uh, with your sorry compel or whatever, um, or as you say, bring a hero out, then then you can do some nasty damage. Yeah, exactly. So it's just a case of again, they think they might have thought ahead and gone, okay, well, what if the siege engine targets these models? Oh, I can protect them. Obviously, you can never account for the six, but uh, two to five is the majority of the dice roll. So yeah, exactly. Um, and if you can then put it back in your advantage uh it's it's pretty powerful and what do you do to combat these things i mean these are great ideas for for people to put into practice but and both of them sound like they're pretty hard to to counter what what sort of things can you do to to defend against this yeah i mean obviously if you're using these it's pretty good because there's going to be a lot of outplay potential but if you're coming up against them for banners it's just perhaps making sure there's no possible way along the back line that your banner can be moved out. So it's just blocking it in. So uh, you only need what? If you've got a shield wall rank, it'll be your your normal shield wall, your banner's in there, but then you just put one model behind the banner. Um, and that way, you're just preventing it from being moved at all. Obviously, once the line's hit, it's going to be harder to do that, but it just stops that initial, you're coming towards each other and you're marching nicely in your rank that's too deep it's very easy for somebody just to knock your banner back from that whereas Mm. if you then just put one model behind the banner it just means that they can't be moved at all i mean obviously they can still be targeted by the spell or magical power but it's pointless because they're not going to be moving anywhere yeah 
And with regards to the other one, I guess it's just making sure you've got two models that it could scatter to rather than one. Yeah, that, that's the simple answer for the second one, isn't it? Definitely just just go, well, you know what? Have two four guys because you never know. Uh, it might, And especially against my three trebuchet army, you're going to need a fair few more than two. But either way, yeah, just having a couple of couple of four guys. And if you've never come up against siege engines, just having having someone at least standing a, a few inches away from everyone. And that, that placement is also... Um, crucial as well because i've i've done it before where i've you know say for example i've got a hero in the middle of a shield wall um and then i've got I, i've moved someone off so to make sure that they're three inches away from the center um and uh, and then uh, but but not necessarily three inches away from some of the other people in the ranks that and, and i've just made complete messes of it by um letting people target the person next to the um, hero and still ending up knocking the hero down and things like that. I don't know whether I explained that well, but um, either way, be very careful with siege engines. Yeah, I think if you're initially facing them, you can just take the uh, sort of maybe easier approach where you just put everything at least two inches away from something else. And I'm sure you've all seen pictures on Facebook where it's like, oh, playing a siege engine and every model is two inches away from another model. <laughs> I, I remember I played Devin Marino um, at the Throne of Schools when I did take um, the three trebuchets, or it might have been two trebuchets at the time. Um, and he, his army was Sauron and just so many orcs. It was unbelievable. And a couple of war captains. And he, he just basically spread all of his army out so that nothing um, was going to get... Um, uh, every shot was only going to take out like one orc or something like that. So, um, yeah, that's that's a good strategy. But, of course, then you are spreading out your army massively, which is a bit of a downside. But um, interesting, though, the, the, the use of magic there, too. And, and targeting key models is something that um, Dave Farmer mentioned earlier on. We were talking about um, using things like Sorceress Blast to knock into key models. So rather than targeting that hero that's got free will, um, target the person in front to knock into the the hero, even if it, to either to knock them off the horse or just to knock them on the bum or just to try and get an extra strength three hit against a hero and try and be lucky, that sort of thing. Those sorts of ways of using magic or or, or other other tactics like your, your spectres and stuff to just to target those key models can there's lots of different ways to use spells and I suppose you know just thinking well if I'm sorceress blasting um, you know Aragorn then you know that might not always be the best option yeah I mean if you think about fortified spirit there's not much point in trying to sorceress blast a fortified spirit model off their horse but if there's a model in front of them that can't resist then you can just take it out for free essentially yeah yeah exactly and, and you know you might not need to roll as many dice or and save your will for later all that sort of stuff so it's it's really nice yeah okay so now you've got a couple more things on your list um particularly relating to the uh, the goblin king and now I've come up against Goblin King a few times and it's always been a very, very tricksy model. And and I actually watched the... I've been recently re-watching some of the, um, the Grand Tournament from last year, um, the just before uh, COVID struck. There was a, a... One of the first games was a Goblin um, Town army against an Elven army. And some of these tricks are really, really very useful and very scary to come up against. Goblin Town is a massive horde, but actually some of the strength lies in two models and two models alone. Yeah, so I think... Goblin Town is probably one of the more easy armies to play with because you just put models down and you just outnumber the opponent. But the key to getting the best out of them is the the two models that you're mentioning, which is the Goblin King and Gollum. And it's the way that they combine together. So the Goblin King, uh, what's special about him is that he's able to move through 
friendly goblins. Mm. Um, obviously, they can take hits, but this becomes particularly useful when you want to target certain heroes and you want to get him to those heroes without your opponent necessarily seeing that happening and no more so than in heroic combats because uh, there's plenty of times people could think oh yeah my, my hero's safe and they obviously they won't strike because they don't think that you're going to be able to engage with them but if you're able to then call that heroic combat move through your models just in a straight line your opponent doesn't see it coming and therefore you can get on the target you want that's great and then that just becomes even better when you pair it with Gollum. Um, so you can do exactly the same thing, and move, wearing the ring can move through as uh, move through people, and also can have their fight value as well, which is amazing. Yeah. So I think it was only a year ago, I think, that in the FAQ that meant that Gollum could move through his friendly models. Before that, he could only enemies could only move through him. So mm. that was quite an interesting change. Um, but yeah, so he puts the ring on and he can move through friendly models. So again, he can do that tricksy little move to get in with the, the models that he wants. But the key thing here is that he's got the ring. So the enemy is going to be halving their fight value. And when you pair that with the Goblin King, whose fight value is six, you're guaranteed to win the fight on fight value every Absol- single time. Absolutely. And, and Goblin King's three attacks and, you know... <laughs> Very strong, got uh, brutal power attacks as well. So, so yeah, is a, a deadly, deadly assassin as well. And and what's interesting, you, you've raised this point. This is uh, I, I would almost slot it into the same thing that um, Dave Farmer and I talked about as atypical movement. It's one of those those little movement tricks that because it's a slightly different way that you're allowed to move this one model it's 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 unusual it's you know it in the same way that your uh, the Noldoran exiles or the uh, some of the Uruk marauder scouts um can move 8 inches and you might not expect it or that the uh, the new uh, druid and legendary legion you can move through terrain and you might not expect it for cavalry to be able to move straight through terrain this goblin king being able to do that Especially when you're in the heat of a tournament and you're not, you, you know, you're thinking, oh, I've got got an hour until lunch. What I'm going to have, or oh, yeah, this is fine. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, Glorfindel's fine there. It'll be absolutely okay. And then, then you don't necessarily think that oh, Goblin King's going to stomp through two five point models to to get to get to where he needs to be. Yeah, it's exactly. It's just that it's much harder to to predict that move happening um, because it's it's not what you'd expect, and there's just so many more ways in which it can be done and with the one ring obviously Gollum is going to suffer later on if he's not rolling the three plus so that you move him but the key thing here is you've got one turn if you're the Gollum and Goblin King combo player you've got one turn where it's guaranteed Gollum puts the ring on he halves the fight enemy fight by his model the Goblin King can get in there and then hopefully you can get done what you need to get done in one turn Absolutely, and and he's uh, it's just such a nasty combo because I'd imagine. I, so I've never played with the Goblin King, um, although I do have uh, a model now for for the Goblin King, and I can't wait to build it at some point. But um, it's one of those things that where you 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 will probably call a heroic combat, and the opponent will look at the the table and go, "Nah, I, I don't see what what you're going to do with that. You're probably just going to bump into a few extra guys, or ah, that's fine. I'll I'll leave it be." And and then and not long after that they've sort of. Uh, the combats have started you're like yes and this is what i'm doing and you kind of have this horrible <laughs> reveal on your face i could just imagine it. i could picture it now just 
I, I know that I've done that a few times and you're thinking, <laughs> yes, please, please don't strike. Please don't strike. You haven't seen it coming. You haven't seen it coming. Yes, you haven't seen it coming. Okay, here we go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, and it, it, like you say, it's it, it's just, uh, it's a bit brutal. It's a bit brutal, but um, because like you, once once the, the Goblin King gets stuck into something, um, especially with Gollum, Gollum there, it's, it's it doesn't often end well for the opponent. So really, really nice, really nice, very specific movement. But um, and it's worth noting, and um, there are I suppose there are ways of protecting against that, and that is probably just you know, if you know that the Goblin King's about, be very careful that you're always over six inches away from him, um, because he won't be able to hurt combat through his troops. Then, yeah, exactly, and maybe try and take Gollum out uh, before you get stuck into combat, because he he can be shot at and. He's really nasty for his points. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it also sometimes the go- golem, especially in those missions where you've got to kill a specific character, golem's often a great choice for for the opponent to choose because once he's got his invisibility on, he's very hard to kill. So uh, you never know; you might get get lucky in the first turn. And um, but yeah, brilliant option. And and those those sorts of things, those uh, again, I, I mean, I'm bringing it up again. These sneaky kind of moves, and that they're almost they almost feel a bit mean because you're exploiting the fact that your opponent doesn't necessarily know. Um, all of your your models inside out but those are the sorts of things that that elevate um you know the top tier players they know the opponent opponent's rules inside out yeah and i think when you're playing on the top tables you just presume that everybody knows all your special rules and you presume that they see everything coming which generally people do and it's just trying to find those little advantages that you can get to to be able to to make it happen. Absolutely, and 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 these sorts of things. It's like uh, like playing a game of chess. If you're only paying attention to your own models moving around on the uh, the chessboard, and you're not looking at what the opponent's doing, you've got no chance. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing you'll find in terms of when you get to the top tables. It's just generally everybody knows what's happening and what is able to happen, and mm. it's very rarely will you ever see somebody fail to call a heroic strike because they can see that somebody's trying to combat into them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's 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 knowing all the plays uh, means that you can count hopefully counter them before they happen. Um interesting. So so another one you've got here and I I love these kinds of moves. And um, anything that involves dismounting something always makes me really interested because Again, this is something a, you don't see very often. It's very much a corner case kind of thing. But when somebody dismounts a model, um, it starts becoming a really interesting game. So, I mean, you've got a very specific example there. Yeah, so this one involves Warg Marauders, which unfortunately I haven't seen too much of since uh, the changes to them. But I still think yeah. they are great models. Um, okay, potentially there's a bit more counterplay to them, but they do just as much as what they did before. So... In essence, it's just being more careful with them. They're more of a glass cannon than what they mm-hmm. were. Uh, but this one involves the the dismounting because there's three goblins on top of the model. So when you dismount, you're potentially going from one model to four models if the warg passes its courage test. Now, imagine you're playing recon and you've got one marauder getting to the edge of the opponent's board. Instead of just running off one marauder, you stop you just get your goblins off and then you just walk them all off and you're going a threat right there from one model into four models and that can be any objective on the on the table 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and because there are some where you have to have more models near an objective and things like that, aren't there as well? So that is a great move. And just if if people don't know, because as you said, walk walk marauders aren't as common anymore. These are the Moria goblin ones. They've got three goblins sit on the back. One of them's got a bow, um, and they count this this strange hybrid profile where they count as both cavalry and the, the and the three models on it and all this sort of stuff so there's some very unusual rules there but and they're a very specific example but i suppose i, ha- I have in, no idea where they came from yeah it's just a strange one isn't it but <laughs> if you're ever looking to convert something they are the easiest things and one of the best looking things to convert you literally go buy some wags and i'd recommend fell wags because they look better and you just stick your goblins on top there is nothing more complicated yep, than that. Just click the uh, <laughs> clip the slotter plastic thing off the bottom of the feet of the goblin, and then they 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 look very bow legged anyway, so they just sort of sit on really nicely, don't they? And 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 this is, I, I suppose, you you've chosen a very specific example for war marauders, which you really have to look out for if you're playing a Moria army and and you're playing recon. Look out for those war marauders because they can be really really dangerous. But but I suppose the same can be said of of any wargs or, or and you know things like felwargs and uh, in gundabad and similar that if you're not careful that those two cavalry that you think are just going to ride off the edge and take two points um to the other side can turn into three or four exactly i think the key thing to remember is that they need to pass courage tests yeah. and with courage two without a warhorn is less likely but when it's in the case of a warg marauder it's a guaranteed three potentially yeah. four which makes them so much better at doing it and I think the best thing I ever did with them um, was I was playing a game and it got to the end of shooting and I was down to 25% and it was a scenario that ended at 25% and my opponent was like, oh, so the game ends this turn then. And I'm like, not necessarily. And they're like, but it has to end at this turn. I'm like, mm, just wait. And we get to combat and I use the Balrog to hurl into my own warg marauder to knock all the goblins off to put me a back above 25 percent. i felt so pleased that i managed to do it (laughs) it was just (laughs) completely ridiculous but i was like it actually worked (laughs) that's well and again it's one of those things you you, you've got a better chance of if if it's if it's either killing uh losing one model or or you know potentially killing one of the two uh, or three um goblins sat on top the back of it there's it's kind of a no risk strategy in the same way that um you know if you if you have your walk at the edge of the board ready to go off and recon that dismounting it is it, it's you know there's no downside to it your your walk might run away but even so you're still going to have um one model that walks off the board the next turn so it, it's it's a great move and the, the there's lots of things you can do with that obviously sadly you can't do it with um with good models with horses but those wags they're, they're good for that yeah i think the key thing is um it's knowing that it's a last resort because you can never put them back on and cavalry models are always much more effective when they're able to get those cavalry bonuses so you only want to do it when you've like oh okay well i've got the use out of what i wanted from them initially and this is a case of right it's for an objective or it's a last resort to keep the game going kind of thing yeah, but like you say, it, it it could be a game-winning move if if you've only managed to get your Wag Marauder to the edge of the board and the opponent's already taken three models off uh, off their side, and you can change it in a in a 
flick of the fingers with from one model going off the board to potentially four to win you the game it, it, it could be it could be a game changer and exactly those sorts of things are the things that that tip someone um from being a sort of you know a mid-ranking player like uh, like myself to uh, to someone like you on the the top tables yeah it's just the the little things that make a difference the little things that make a difference. It sounds like a cheesy slogan, but it's true. <laughs> well, I mean, if you talk about in cycling, what was it? They said that it's the marginal gains. And yeah. in essence, that's what this game is. Like yeah. sometimes you get super bad luck on a big play, but if you're just looking to take 1% off every move, then that's going to add up to an awful lot. Exactly. That's brilliant. Now, something else. Um, so uh, we'll move on to your final one that you've written down, although we might have a general, uh, more general chat afterwards. Um, drummers. Now, drummers are an interesting one because I, I, at first I thought drummers were exactly the same as the march, but they're subtly different, aren't they? Um, so so what, what, do you, what would you do with a drummer that's, that's a little bit different? So I think most people just think, all right, cool, it's good. It gets me to where I need to be quickly and then we can fight. But I quickly realised the first time I used them that you can do more than that because obviously when you're within the effects of a drum, you can't charge, um, but you don't have to stay within the area of the drum either. So mm. what I realised you could do was, and this was for the Urukai Scout Army, which doesn't have any spear supports, it was a case of positioning your drummer so that it caught the back row of your Urukai, allowing your front ones to charge freely and then use the back one's extra move to wrap around on your opponent ready for the next turn. Ooh, and even potentially get a trap. Well, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you obviously got to be careful about control zones, but it's just that ability to go, okay, well, I'm still allowing myself to charge, I'm still allowing myself to tie up the enemy, but still get that reposition in. And the amount of times, I think I've probably spent more time thinking about where to put a drummer than I have any other model because you've got your tape measure out with your 12 inches and you're thinking, right, well, I want those ones in, but not those ones on the right-hand side. And then you look across the left-hand side and you've moved your drummer back 12 inches from the ones on the right. And then you're like, oh no, wait, it's hitting the other ones on the other side now. Oh no, but I want that one in over there. And it's just like eventually sort of settle on a point and you put your dice down, picked your drummer up so you knew where he was and you're just constantly playing around with this tape measure until you're eventually happy going right okay so he's given me the extra move for all of those ones but not those ones that's that's and and actually just you describing that process it, it highlights another thing that not not necessarily related to drummer but the the precision placement of models is absolutely 100 percent key to this game and and it's something that um that, that sometimes especially newer players think oh you know i'll just move them to here and then you kind of make, you realize too late that you've moved it too far or too close to something or whatever or or out of range of that banner or in in range of that drum as you say um and those sorts of movements are, are absolutely 100 percent key but I, I love the idea that you're 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 playing around with this drum to to make sure it's exactly the right spot yeah i i mean i think i think i played a one or two of the other top players and they sort of picked up on that as well very quickly and gone, oh, I hadn't, hadn't thought of using a drummer like that before. And it's always nice to to sort of come up with something and then see it replicated. And likewise, I like seeing what other top players do. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I, I never thought of that before. Um, so, yeah, it's just always learning and wanting to push the game on, essentially. Absolutely fantastic, and 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 it's interesting. Dave mentioned uh, Farmer mentioned earlier in the podcast about um about 
deployment and the minutiae of deployment and spending time on deployment, he said he, he realized that he, he kept performing a bit worse or struggling in his first games at tournaments. And he, he said he, he worked out after a while that it was because he, he used to sort of deploy in a rush because of the start of the tournament because sometimes there's not as much time at the start of the tournament but uh, and realized that was one of his weaknesses that um deployment and and kind of maybe rushing deployment a little bit was uh, was a bit of a mistake and and again and and as you're just describing with the measuring tape and all that sort of stuff if you if you start in a in a bad position at the start you can spend a lot of time um trying to recover from that sort of mistake but actually it's uh yeah, it maybe spend an extra time, extra minute doing deployment and not rushing it or or, or that sort of thing. You you make fewer mistakes, don't you? Yeah, I also, that actually reminds me of something else. I think there's no scenario that highlights that more than Contest of Champions. Yeah. Because you're starting so close together. And quite often people will want to, if they think they've got a hero that's going to lose a matchup, they'll position them to protect them, but not necessarily think about where they're going to go. So I think, another good tactic that you can do is if you let's say your hero's mounted is you can put them you can make a gap for them so it's a horse-sized gap so your model can move through that gap but the enemy can't move through there because they're going to go through the control zones of your front rank and your spear rank so it's a way of ensuring that your hero is protected but also able to charge as well so you can start picking up those kills that's a really good one and again it's it's uh, you could it's just something so simple and actually yeah just moving that rank apart cuz i've seen plenty of games where people um set up their their army and and you know deploy with say they've got a, a decent killy character but that maybe they're deploying up against i don't know aragorn or sauron or whatever and they're going oh, oh i don't want i don't want Theoden to face that so um yeah hiding it behind and then realizing too too late that already in the first turn sauron's got two three kills and then Theoden's got to really catch up and and because they're boxed in by everything that it's going to take a bit longer yeah it's a classic example like if you take your time to think about what your hero is potentially wanting to go and do and setting yourself up for a multitude of scenarios you're actually going to benefit yourself in the long run rather than having some really difficult decisions later on where you're then potentially thinking more over each turn Mm. because you've given yourself those opportunities absolutely and and just thinking about those sorts of things can uh, even just spending an extra 30 seconds or minute before you move something uh, it it can actually save you time in the long run i know there's often the pressure in a tournament that you're thinking oh i've only got an hour and a half to do this game and and you, you, you panic a little bit but spending that extra minute early on means that you can you might save yourself a few minutes later, making a mis- uh, recovering from a mistake or, or working out what to do once you've put yourself in a bad position. Yeah, and it doesn't have to take long either. Just get a spare base or a spare model with the same size base. And when you're creating your shield wall, just use that spare base to to know that the gap is there and you know that the gap is perfect because the base fits. Mm, exactly. Oh, it's, it's There's so many nuances in this game. And this is why I love it. I, I think... That, I mean, it's. I think I mentioned earlier today that it is one of those games that is very easy to to grasp the basics, and you can, you know, a, a five year old or well, maybe not a five year old, but an eight year old or something like that could probably pick up the game and and understand the the basics. But it takes so long to to work out all of these little nuances, and and I think that's why that's why I, I've certain, certainly fallen for it because it's just it's got so many layers of difficulty and uh, and fun, and and you know, it, it caters for all of those kind of skill levels. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that constant, you're you're playing 
your game, but you're also playing the opponent's game and you're thinking, like like you said about chess, it's just going, okay, right, well, what is my opponent thinking that they're going to do? And it's you've got that tactical yeah, battle going on. Having a think about what they're going to do is always a great idea, which something I don't actually do at all in the game, which is probably why I lose so often, is that I'm not thinking <laughs> what I would do in their shoes, which is probably a good tip to, tip to think about. Absolutely. Well, Jasmine, um, thank you very much for for coming on the podcast and sharing some of your top table tips and tricks. It's been an absolute pleasure and I feel like I've learnt so much in these uh, last 30 or so minutes um, that I really should have picked up on over the last few years. Well, I look forward to you using them against me when we're able to play again. I hope so too. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Jasmine Tetley there, really, really interesting tips there and some fantastic combinations of things to use, certainly in the Moria Goblin army and the uh, uh, the Goblin King as well, Gollum and all that sort of stuff. But lots of practical use there, lots of lots of wide ranging uh, ways to improve your game. I hope you've I hope you've really listened because I'm taking notes myself. OK, so um, now before our final one, um, who really does need no introduction, although his name is Will Champion. Um, He's an absolute master of the game, and I've spoken to him many, many a time. And Will is one of those people who, um, if you've ever played against him, um, you'll understand that he's just he's just got a mind for it. He's got a game, a, a mind for strategy, and um, has has spoken. I've spoken to him a few times about this, about his approach to the game, which is kind of. I suppose not really focusing much on the lists themselves, although obviously um, making the lists good means that it makes your job a bit easier. Will's kind of idea has always been play the best game you can and, and to, to kind of focus in on that strategy side of the strategy battle game. So um, that's what I asked him. I asked him, you know, what are the strategies? What are the best ways of tackling the game? And what tips and tricks do you have? And I was astounded at the level of strategy uh, Willers uh, goes into here. It's a really invaluable conversation. So uh, so do take notes, sit and pay attention. Re-listen to this because this is how you win at Lord of the Rings or Middle-earth strategy battle game, according to Will Champion, the winner of the GBHL League last year. Welcome along to the podcast. It's Mr. Will Champion. Good evening or afternoon or morning depending on what time you're listening to this good evening from will how the devil are you <laughs> i'm absolutely fine will thanks very much for coming on the podcast um I, it's, it feels like it's been a, a been a while since the the tournament in september um the rings of men or the is it the kings of men or rings of men i can't remember which rings of men isn't it um which you hosted and it, yeah we get, had a bit of a chat then but it's been many moons since uh, a proper SBG tournament, so it's nice to have a catch-up. Absolutely. I think the last time we spoke, you were about to stay up for 24 hours, which was incredibly <laughs> thrilling to watch. I very much enjoyed that endeavour. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, if, if you don't know what Will's talking about, this was my 24-hour Entmoot Live challenge, which is on the YouTube channel. Um, just search Battle Games in Middle-Earth. It's still up there the whole 24 hours, so you can watch as I slowly wilt and get incredibly emotional at the end after staying up for, uh, in excess of 24 hours. But it worked, and um, yeah, we had loads of people on and loads of great conversations, including with your good self. Yeah, well, hopefully yeah, well, people hopefully enjoyed, people it. enjoyed I it. I certainly did. Good. I, from what I gather, you were you were having a drinking sesh while listening to it in the background. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, well, uh, bit, you know, bit, you know, lockdown, lockdown it's a bit of a habit, a habit, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it it has. Well, I, I I I only remember this because I remember thinking, how many people actually be up 
at three or so in the morning. I thought it would mainly be people overseas, but I do remember seeing your little your little um, comments popping up every so often at that that early hour. So I knew you were up to mischief. <laughs> yeah, mischief is absolutely the description. Absolutely, and and that's kind of what we're we're going to talk about as well today. Uh, tips and tricks, and and sly gamesmanship, or, or not necessarily, um, you know, sneakiness oh, you can't, or, or can't be mean putting tactics. those words to my name, Harry. <laughs> well, I, I I'll I'll rephrase. I'll rephrase. Um, not gamesmanship, but actually just just playing the game well and for many many sort of moons i've been thinking and and we've been hearing throughout the podcast about how how you know i've got a pretty got solid grasp on on the rules i know that i know the stats and i know pretty much everything other than the wound table still um, (laughs) (laughs) despite it playing for years um but i've not been able to quite escalate above that kind of you know um solid playing you know three three wins three losses kind of vibe and I've I've analysed uh, analysed things, and I think it comes down to very specific mistakes that I regularly make, or just being outplayed often. And I thought I'd gather together all the good people of the um, of the league, or a few of the uh, top players, and ask for some tips and tricks. And I I set you that challenge, Will, and you've come up with quite a few different uh, little ideas to basically uh, help you get from you know decent player to above there, which is hopefully uh what you've got for me so first of all just just give us an, a general idea what am i doing wrong i mean you've played me a few times what what do beginners what do even those intermediate players do wrong um how long is a piece of string i think um it depends on the enthusiasm of the player and why they're playing um in order to find out sort of where the mistakes might come from um if you've got someone that loves the books and the films and wants to kind of do the coolest stuff possible then they might not necessarily think about the game itself. Um, you know, how am I actually going to score points as opposed to Aragorn charging straight into a horde of orcs or whatever. Um, and then if you've got people that are only particularly interested in the game but they're not too familiar on the the actual mechanics, then they're going to struggle to put the heroes in the right place or, you know, use their resources properly. Um for you, where where are you going wrong? Is is a, an awfully specific question. Well, I know you've you've played me a couple. I, I can't think how many times you've played me. Maybe two or three, but um, I've always lost. Um, so I, I just wondered whether whether you know off the top of your head any things that that I definitely do wrong, which might actually in turn help others. Um, I think you're definitely you definitely fall into the themey category um, because I'd consider you to be a pretty mm. competent player, and you certainly know the rules. Um, but I see the little twinkle in your eye when you know Sauron's wanting to go line up against the biggest hero, rather than perhaps casting a spell against the right person at the right time, um, and things like that. I think we played at Epping, and you had the Witch King and some Moranans, I believe. Yeah, that um, sounds right. I, th- I I could be completely wrong, but I think the Witch King ended up in a bit of a precarious position because you got a a thirst for blood um and he got caught out <laughs> although i i, I yeah, could that, be talking nonsense no that does sound right from from memory i believe you had your um arnor guys and the uh the, the little hobbit archers and stuff and i and i think i probably just wanted to get smashing stuff yes uh, yeah because i had kurdan and, and literally just a yep. smattering of elves and the elves managed to get to the witch king um and caused a bit of trouble i think 
Yeah, yeah, Fight 5 Elven Blades tends to do that yeah. <laughs> against a Witch King, sadly. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Okay, well, that's that's one thing. Yeah, so if you're a, a themey player, not not there's anything wrong with that, but if you're looking Absolutely to win not. games, obviously, um, perhaps thinking, getting your head in the game and out of the books and the, the uh, recreating the matches might be uh, the way to win, I suppose. Mm, absolutely. Okay. Well, that's that's a good start for me. I know you've got a, you've got a list of other things um, that you, you you want to talk about as well. And the first of all, this is an interesting headline: um, bookkeeping. Because I mean, I, I don't know what you mean by this. This is why why I'm so interested in your 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 strategies and your tips. Because bookkeeping to me is just writing down my will and fate, and you know that's it. I just just keep track of it. And that's fine. I mean, you're certainly not wrong. Um... It's actually, if, if you're wanting to be a, a top-level player, um, it's a very important thing to do, and it's really, really lame, um, to be completely honest with you. Um, but it's important that you do it. So um, the key things are tracking both sets of stats. So you want to be tracking your might, will, fate, wounds, and your opponents. Um, purely so you can allocate things better, and you're not going to get caught out by realising you know, too late that somebody's got might when you thought they'd run out and things like that. Um, the next important one is uh, break points, monitoring, monitoring your own and your opponents. Um, because being broken is a can be a gift and a curse depending on the scenario because you might want the scenario to end as soon as possible. Um, and it might be, you might be able to formulate that quicker by dying yourself than killing your opponent or vice versa and maybe you don't quite want anyone to be broken yet. Um, um, so- I'm completely with you there. So, so actually, bookkeeping can mean uh, it, yes, it can mean just working, making sure you're you you've got the might you think you have that sort of stuff. But also, uh, keeping a track of almost they're almost like um, way markers in the game, aren't they? I suppose if you know your your five models off breaking and you haven't quite got to the place you need to be for an objective or whatever, then you know you need to crack on. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which kind of goes into into the next part of bookkeeping. Um, which is write the bloody VPs down for the scenario, know exactly what you need to do to win it, and keep an eye on how the game's going and what the most likely outcomes are. Hmm. Because if there's five minutes left on the clock and you do a quick tally up to realise that you're going to lose 5-3, it's probably too late for you to do anything about it. Whereas if you're looking at the scenario at the top of it and looking at uh, you know two fresh armies... You know, are you likely to kill the general? Is it someone like the Goblin King who you're going to struggle to deal with? Or is it, I don't know, a measly Nazug like I like to take who's going to hide at the board and not go anywhere near you? So Mm. are you likely to get those VPs? If not, where are you going to score VPs from? And, And sort of get all of that stuff lined up and ready to go so you know what you need to do before you start. And how do you do that in a in a pressured tournament situation where you know maybe you've just you've, you've got five minutes between games where you you know you want to have a drink you want to go to the toilet you want to move your ta- uh, move your t- uh, toys on the tray and then get them set up and all that sort of stuff how how are you able to do that in in a quick time as well as tallying down models and the new army and working out what your opponent's done I mean I, I find all of those things uh, bewildering sometimes when you've got little time to do it. It depends how committed you are, because you could always piss your pants and get dehydrated. Um, that would save you quite a bit of time between rounds. <laughs> well, it would, it would. But yeah, I mean, you don't do that. You you drink and you have a beer and you you have a have time. You just and uh, I, I do use just... the toilet. Um, yes, you do. <laughs> 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 oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 
Um, a key thing to do that, that can speed things up, um, if, if time between rounds is a factor, which is at some tournaments, hmm. um, would be to, you know, you can use Excel or whatever and have sort of printouts so all of your stats and stuff are ready to go. Um, you know, you can just print a sheet that's got six tables of, I don't know, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli with your might points that you can tick off ready to go and then have boxes ready for your opponent, um, mm. you know, so you know exactly where you need to look and, you know, that would cut half your time down. Um, and the scenarios, a lot of the time the scenarios are released, you know, released beforehand so you know what you're going to be playing. Yeah. And if not, there's only 18 to look at and a lot of them play very similar. So, you know, it might just be a little bit of homework before the event, just having a look at the scenarios, what's likely to be played, and, and sort of, you know, have, just having a general idea of, of what you're going to need to do to win each game. Yeah, that, that being familiar with those scenarios is is pretty crucial, isn't it? And, uh, you know, you say only 18, and that, that is quite a lot more than it used to be. You know, we've got an extra yeah, six sure. fresh ones. And I know a lot of people, um, certainly last year or so, probably haven't played some of those new scenarios either because uh, because of, you know, just lockdown restricting the amount of games that we're playing. Yeah, for but, sure. I mean, I'm one of those people. Yeah, uh, me too. I've, I think I've played two now. Um, so... Yeah, that, that that's getting familiar. But I, I see you even just something simple like you, you mentioned the the Excel spreadsheet or, or printing it out. There are different ways of tallying people's might. Some people put write the number three and then cross it out and put two there, and other people have little circles you, you colour yeah, in. They, and... Those those three cross two cross one people are crazy, and they need committing <laughs> somewhere. A, a lovely little circle that you can shade in or put a line through is the way to go. Yeah, hundred percent. Because no mistakes that. can be made there. Yeah, no. Once it's gone, it's gone. And and also the great thing is if you uh, if you have a, a hero that you can get might back like a gambling or or whatever, then you can add a little circle and it doesn't ruin things and you don't have a exactly. whole list of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Bookkeeping is probably not one of the things that many people immediately think about as being a game winning strategy. But um, def- I suppose in a way it's it's thinking about how how you're going to win at the start and making sure it's easy for you to keep track of those those victory points which you know everyone says um the the biggest tip to win a game is to play to the scenario and i suppose bookkeeping yeah, helps for sure. that yeah and it, i think it's it's incredibly important to have that in mind if, if even if you're not likely to win the game if it's going to be a really horrible game that you don't think you're going to win at that point looking at what vps you can score and how you can score them is even more important Absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose your bookkeeping and those those VPs and all that sort of stuff leads into um, your next point, which was set up. Because I suppose, for example, uh, if you know you've got to kill the general and, uh, I don't know, it's Contest of Champions or something, you know where you've got to put your the killers of the general or where to keep your people away from if there's a particularly dangerous hero, things like that. Um, is that what you're talking about with setup? Yeah, 100%. Um, so setup is everything. And I feel very strongly that setup will win or lose you games more so than anything else in the game. Mm. Um, and, you, and you really have to think about it. Um, the, the first thing, which is kind of the, the transition from bookkeeping, is, is just think about it. So yeah. what, what, what are the problems in the scenario and the army that you're playing? What are their key synergies and threats? What are they going to try and do? You know, if you've got, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've got the Goblin King and Gollum, you know that they're going to try and pair that together because that's that's what they do. If they've got lots of shooting, they're not going to charge up the board and try and fight you. You know, so you can you can bear all of these things in mind when you start. And another thing, and and this could easily get misconstrued, but it's with the best intentions. Is are you going to have to play quickly or slowly? Mm. And 
I don't mean that in a manner of being gamey because I, I've not got time for that. Um, but it's, you know, if your opponent has got a... a thousand points uh, of ruffians. Exactly. <laughs> like some crazy cretin like that. If, if, if someone's got a hundred models and they all do something, their turns are going to take a long time. And that means that if you want to maintain control of the game, your turns need to be very, very quick. And inversely, if your opponent's army has got four models, because they're all heroes or whatever, you know that you can take more time to think about what you need to do. Um, And so it's not about manipulating the time, it's just setting your own expectations of, of how much time you're likely to have for your turns, and then know being ready for that and interestingly dave farmer um early on in the podcast said a, a similar sort of thing he analyzed his games and and said that he he was he was generally weaker in the first games of the tournament uh because you know he either he was losing more games in the first games of tournaments or or he was winning by smaller margins and he reckoned that it was because he was rushing around trying to get everything set up getting his models out his cases and all that sort of stuff and was rushing deployment possibly maybe he should just arrive 15 minutes earlier to the event um <laughs> and it's and it's it, well it's true but it's a simple trick but you know getting there on time having your models out of the case on a nice tray even just having a tray rather than or um, putting them back yeah, in a man. box and in and out those sorts of things can really just be ready to go yeah, they can really help can't they yeah and and with my to hat on as a to you can make that a lot easier by giving people the first round draw so you haven't got 50 people congregating around the laptop wanting to know where to go um, people can just come into the events hall, they know what table they're going to be on, they know who they're playing, and they can go and get set up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that can, that can help a it lot. It does, because everyone naturally congregates somewhere, and then they end up putting your box down, and putting it, you know, and, and some of us have a, a, a case and a, a monster or something, and then you've got your bags with your books and all, and there's and dozens, then, dozens yeah, of books and, these days as well. Someone's forgotten a book, and someone can't find their tape measure, and, it, you know... It, it, Give yourself time for other people to make mistakes and delay things. Absolutely. Um, and if everybody does that, there won't be any delays. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good idea. But in terms of actual strategy of deploying, I mean, obviously you mentioned uh, where the characters, uh, your, your dangerous combinations like your Gollum and your Goblin King. There's, there's obviously yeah. terrain as well to consider. Um, Absolutely. And, so, so I just want to ask this very specific question. When there's something like a big block of terrain in the middle on the side that you've been forced to deploy on, how do you get around those sorts of very specific issues that you think, right, okay, I've got to at some point either commit to one side or another or divide my force? Yeah, and and scenery can be a real struggle, um, especially if you get, you know, as, as you've just said, that big block of nuisance. You know, it, it could be like a, a massive rocky outcrop. It could be a big splodge of woodland terrain you know right in the middle of your deployment zone sometimes near the middle as well so you can't build your big sexy battle line um and even things like the you know the resin half weather tops and things like that yeah um (laughs) yeah the, the best the best thing you can do really is um look at how your army works and just try and pick the best strategy that you can you should never really split your army if you can avoid it, unless it, it's you know specifically built to be good at that. So I'd always recommend sticking together where possible and also just making sure that in, when you're planning, you allocate the resources to kind of rectify that as quickly as possible. So if you've got a rogue warband that's had to deploy somewhere else, 
you know, you might have to suck it up and spend their might to heroic march to get back in formation when normally you'd want to keep that might for later. You know, it, it's all part of the, the plan that you've got to make. And I guess that's part of, you know... Uh knowing what your army does and and that's that's something Jasmine and I talked about just just before you came on was uh, the very very specific knowledge about yours and in, indeed other other people's armies your opponents armies knowing that sort of thing yeah. knowing what how your army works and and therefore uh, and also how the opponent's army work can really help in those tricky situations like oh saying oh I've got a captain here with with half a dozen guys it, it, where do I want them how, are they going to be okay on this flank blah blah that sort of stuff if you know what's exactly. what then you know that can really help yeah so so there's kind of a, a series of questions that um in my wargaming youth i'd ask myself while setting up and now it's just kind of part of the process but i sort of when you're looking at setting up you you want to ask yourself where do my heroes need to be um do they need protecting or are they going to be going on the attack am i likely to heroic march and where do the marching heroes need to be um, are there any flanks that I need to secure and scenery that I can lean against to do that? Conversely, or inversely, I should say, is there scenery which is going to be a big problem, as we've already touched on? Mm. Um, is is the opponent going to be reactive or proactive with their army? Are they going to come flying at me, or are they going to sit at the back of the board? Um, and, and that leads on to, where is the, the fight actually likely to happen on the table? And so how will that make me deploy? Um, and can I control this? So do I have more bows than my opponent? You know, have I got long-range magic or siege weapons? Have they got that? You know, what? And and these little things before you even set up will tell you where the fight's likely to go. Um, especially if you've got a big horrible splodge of terrain on your side, and they've got iron hills, ballistas, and crossbows, because you know you're going to them, and you know roughly w- which way you're going to be going to do it. Um, and just try and deploy appropriately. Th- think of all of these questions, and ultimately there might be nothing that you can do about any of them, and it, it's just about mitigating those disasters as best you can. Yeah, that, that, that's very true, though, but even just asking yourself those questions can head off any potential disasters early on and, and start helps you start thinking about the solutions. And, and like you say, the something yeah. simple like, well, I'm going to need to march at some point, and then you know, not putting your hero in the second rank, for example. If you're, you know, if you're going to march, then it would be silly because then you're going to lose a guy from the march or whatever when while you shimmy him to the front. So the, all these sorts yeah, of things, all these sorts of things, yeah. can really help. And you know, I, I've seen people tragically lose games by, you know, lining up their six bows against somebody else's twelve bows and thinking, oh, we'll just see how this goes. And then they stick it out for a turn too long, and then they bottle it, and they have to go on the offensive and try and charge. And at that point, it's already too late. So, you know, without going into dice maths and stuff, because a, I'm not very good at it, and b, I, I kind of despise it. <laughs> you know, you, you can kind of tell if you're going to win a shooting war or not. And if you're not, don't try. You know, plan for that failure and do something else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and most people can work out generally. You know, if you've got twelve bows hitting on threes, then you're going to be better off than six bows hitting on fives or whatever it yeah, is. Exactly. That sort of stuff. Exactly. Um, that's really interesting. Now, um, in in terms of more overarching things, I mean, we talked very specifically about you know the, the start process, the setup, the the bookkeeping. How do you approach the actual game? And I suppose you know, thinking a, a more of like in a, the old kind of wargaming strategies of of 
actual moving of the models and where to place them and how to actually confront your army have have you got any big strategies like that you use like i've heard think people mention things like denying flanks or or, or these sorts of things are these things that you think about yeah absolutely so i kind of mentioned flanks and scenery for anchors um you never really want to have a line of troops in the middle of a board and, you know, with space for something to just run around the back on, on either side if you can avoid it. You know, unless your army's specifically good at dealing with it, like, you know, you don't care about spear supports because you've got hunter rocks or something like that, so you don't, you don't really mind so much. So you should always look at a way to refuse a flank if possible. Um, that might be reducing the width of your shield wall and sort of closing a side back almost in like a lazy L shape um, and and you know having your heroes on the other side or having it against a wall and because and at the end of the day if your opponent's got a shield wall that's 24 models long and you've got one that's 12 long those you know the 12 models that's wasted on your opponent's side you know they're not going anywhere so you're refusing that flank and making sure that you don't die is more important than spreading out thin and trying to kill them because you're just making your odds of winning those fights worse. Um, so you should always try and find you know pieces of terrain or or difficult terrain um, or, or you know with any you know opportunity where you can't do that because maybe you've had to go to your opponent. It's just making sure that you know perhaps a couple of models move five inches instead of six to make sure that you're not just leaving this horrible open corner for someone to just come and maximize their damage on especially if they've got like mounted heroes or cavalry that can then heroic combat and suddenly you can find yourself in a really sticky situation that's that's interesting that you call this the lazy l then so you're just working your your guys into more more of a just to defend on that one flank a bit more then i guess yeah um and and depending on how severe you need to do it you know depending on how close your opponent is with all of their models ready to bring them to bear, um, you could end up with some poor soul on, on the sort of corner of the L um, that's probably going to bite the dust, and there's not a lot you can do about it. Mm. But if that prevents someone from getting a heroic combat off and pinning down all of your spearmen or something, it's you know it's a sacrifice all generals should be willing to make. Yeah, no, that, that that makes a lot of sense, and I suppose this, the same can be said of things like, uh, you know, having your your army in a kind of C shape or whatever. If you've got to, if you've got some bows, you, maybe you've got the shooting advantage. You've got, um, I don't know, the Rohan Legion, a legendary legion or something, and you're facing up against some big nasty like Azog charging towards you. Just dipping in in the middle to make sure you get extra shots at the sides and all those sorts of things can can really help. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Of... So it, yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. If you're in the advantageous position where your opponent's coming to you and they don't really have a choice of where you engage taking that extra turn of not fighting to get basically completely surround them so they you know they're going to get trapped next turn is always worth it mm-hmm. always yeah that that, that well that, i mean the, the green dragon podcast always talk about traps winning games don't they but I, yeah. it is it is a crucial uh, crucial strategy and i suppose it's it's almost uh, this idea of uh, i've heard people mention before called min maxing you know where you're you're basically going right well i've got the chance here to get four of my guys onto one of my opponents and there's not a lot they can do about it so i'm going to do it essentially and then you increase your chances you get the kill and then you've got four guys uh, who can then move on and kill someone rather than you know risking it and and doing a one-on-ones uh, throughout the line or something yeah and, and at the end of the day the game 
you know, I hate it when people say that it's a game of luck, but dice are involved. And in order to be a good player and, and average more success than failure, you need to mitigate the luck that's available as much as possible. So me rolling one dice and you rolling one dice is kind of anybody's game. But if I'm going to roll four dice and you're going to roll one, the odds are obviously in my favor. And you should always be, you know, just bearing that in mind and saying, how can I make this as advantageous as possible for me? And I guess that's that's you know just making making sense making your decisions easier. I guess it, yeah. it, it's because if you go well, I, I know I can. I'm more than likely going to win this combat if I throw an extra guy in. Um, and then I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Say I've got I've got two guys uh, again. You, you've got two guys against my four or something like that. Rather than going two on two and two on two, I could do something. Say for example, like throw one guy in and shield. Um, and throw the other three in to, to try and guarantee that kill on that one guy. And then, you know, next turn, I've got three against one. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, or, yeah, or I've got four against one. So the, the options are much better for me in that situation. Yeah, people love to sort of get that bloodthirst going and they'll, um, they'll see a potential kill and they'll go for it. And they might not necessarily consider the, you know, an aspect of patience. And, uh, you know, that example there is perfect where you potentially sacrifice one guy um, or, or at least reduce his ability to kill something but hugely increase the odds of killing a model next to him with you know with these spare models that you have um, and if you do that three or four times in a you know in a round of combat then your odds go through the roof Absolutely, and and you, you've mentioned sort of uh, in in your list of things you want to talk about is decision making, and I guess it's those things that are, are are tricky decisions sometimes to make if you're you know if you're thinking um, maybe in the short term thinking oh, I, I need to kill two models here, but actually the the longer term killing the one model for definite and then you know having a chance to kill the second model and a turn down the line or, or maybe two turns down or whatever it, it's it's relatively easy decision when you analyze it that way but maybe at the start it's looking maybe different because you, you may be trying to rush or whatever yeah for sure um just before we hop on to the next one the, the last sort of caveat that i'd throw oh. in about um, thinking about your setup is just about maelstrom of battle because oh, yeah. that can you know really really upset people. I know some people just just hate it as a, de- a deployment method. Um, obviously, it's better to deploy seconds, but you can't always pick that. Um, but one thing you know, it's a very rare situation where corners are actually your friend. Um, you often need to get to the middle, and it's it's obviously the longest way to go. But if you deploy in a corner on a board edge or, you know, as close to a corner as you can, then if you roll poorly um, with your, you know, your next warband and it's coming on a board edge that you don't, you know, the other board edge, you can then form up in the corner and you've got a much higher chance of your army all walking on the board together. There's, it's a very common mistake, especially for newer players. You know, they'll roll that, you know, the four plus or whatever that they really wanted and they'll walk their first warband up, slap bang in the middle of a board edge, and you know, looking right at that objective, thinking they're happy campers. And then next thing, they roll a five on the next warband, and they're scuppered because you know they're going to be about two foot away from the first one. So if if you sort of lean towards corners a little bit, you you sacrifice maybe a turn or two getting to the middle, but it's better to get to the middle with your whole army than a warband. 
Yeah, I think yeah, that's a really good, uh, smart move. And and I know the other thing that people are very re- resistant to do is is to use might in those maelstrom of battle rolls. And and obviously you don't really ne- first turn want to be dumping three points of might to d- get a, a turn a one into a four, for example. But uh, you know, spending a point of might to get put a two to a one or whatever, it it can be it can save your game. Exactly, you, you've got to do what you've got to do. Um... I would rather start a game with no might points and my army together than start a game with all of my might points and have a warband on each board edge. Well, yeah, there you go, and that says it all. And and I know I've I've seen in uh, in the past people people literally spend you know a, a point of might on the first turn to bump it down from a two to a one, so they've got a better chance of getting it. And then the next turn, you know, getting a two again and doing the same again, and, and the third turn having to spend it another really one. And, and you 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 feel almost resistant to it, but it, you've, you've got to hold your nerve in those sorts of situations, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, well, you, you mentioned that was the last sort of setup stuff. So, in terms of the the, the overarching things, what are the other tips and tricks you have? So the the next thing is you know coming into the start of the game is is strategy, um, and so I've kind of got this very very crude um, plan that I have when I play a game, and it, it's it's the four A strategy. And the idea is that you pick one and pocket number two. Um, so it's four A's, and you, you've basically got a choice of how you like what your game style is going to be. So you've got alpha, which is blow all of the might that you've got, be as aggressive as you can, and kill everything that you can. Right. You've got attrition, which is your troops are better than their troops, and so you're going to play the slow game and just let your armies fight it out. You've got avoidance, which is get the objective if possible and then leave their army alone. You know, do what you can to not engage. And then you've got abject failure, which is do what needs to be done and die to end the game. Um, and essentially, you, it, it should be pretty clear of what one of you know which one of those is going to be the most applicable to how the game's going to go. And then you should try and plan for a second one because things don't always get to go to plan. That's really interesting. So that's that is that like your only strategy, your your main you know, top overarching strategy is the four A's. I think so, yeah, because, you know, there's lots of different ways to play the game, but fundamentally, you're going to win by one of those four methods. You're going you're gonna to destroy their army quickly to a point where they can't recover. You know, all your heroes go in, you know... Um, oh, right, combat's first turn, yeah, that sort of thing. The, yeah, the Rohan Legendary Legion is a classic, like, alpha strike list because they're all going to go in, they're all going to call death and hope that there's nothing left to resist them after that. Yeah. You, then you've got attrition, which is you know something like um, like Gondor or or spammy elves that are quite survivable. Your troops are, are generally better than your opponents, so you're going to let those shield walls clash, and you're going to see what happens. Right. You've you've got avoidance, which is for you know really when you're kind of outmatched, um, you might be quite a fast army like Rivendell Knights. You don't you know you don't really want to get caught in the combat. So you're going to do what you can to get the objectives and, and stay out of the way. And then you've got abject failure, which is like, I don't know, you've got a very small elite list and you're playing Goblin Town at whole ground. You're going to get <laughs> on the middle and you are going to pray to God that your models get slaughtered as quickly as possible. 
Oh, that's really interesting, though. I, I, just uh, calling them the four A's uh, ma- makes it much easier and much more likely for me to remember it. Well, this is good. Uh, this is the, exactly the sort of thing that I think. Even just although those all all those things sound logical and they make sense in my in my sort of head, just having uh, having a sort of thought process in mind that goes, okay, this is how I win this game. And like you say, you know, the Rohan Legendary Legion is a great example of an alpha uh, alpha one. But it's sometimes you might come up against something, I can't think of an example, that, that maybe actually that won't work against, I don't know, yeah. Smaug, for example, or something, I don't know. But uh, that one, then you might go, well, actually, I want to avoid or shoot my bows a bit, pepper, you know, soften the targets, whatever it is. Um, and then, so yeah, you, you can, but then you can switch those, those A, switch which A you use, I guess. Yeah, so I, I always try and pick one pocket too, um, in the idea that you've got your main strategy, and it might not work out, so you have a second one ready to go. So, like, avoidance obviously plays into abject failure pretty well. Um, seize the prize. You want to try and get the prize and manoeuvre, but so you get the prize, suddenly you get your ass kicked, so you're like, forget it, I'll run the prize back, I'll die, and hope, you know, and, and I mean, seize the prize is a terrible example because it needs to go off the board. But, but you know what I mean? You, you yeah. kind of get... Like, heirlooms is a better yeah. example. You get the prize, you get the hell out of dodge, um, and then if you start getting your ass kicked, then forget the rest of the VPs. Just die and hope the game ends soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, Whereas there's... like the the alpha, um, the alpha can feed into attrition, and attrition can feed into alpha because you can go in, let your shields wall clash. You know things are taking a bit of a turn. Okay, all of the heroes. Let's call a heroic combat. Let's just try and clear some of the models and you know clear the decks a little bit, or vice versa. You go in, you do your alpha strike. It doesn't really have the effect that you wanted it to have maybe one or two of the combats bounce or you had to spend more might than you thought you'd have to 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 get the kills so okay i've I've made a bit of a gap i didn't you know didn't get them near to break or, or you know put them on on the back foot so let the shield wall come in and we'll we'll take it from there and be a little bit more conservative Ah, oh, wow that's that is really interesting though that 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 actually sheds a lot of a lot of sort of light on just just how how to still approach different games and different ways of thinking is yeah just oh, that's really interesting that's you've, there's, loads there's, loads of food for thought there yeah and there's so much you can do before a game or you know deciding how you're going to play a game before it starts that will have a huge impact on how the game goes yeah well what what sort of things do you mean well if you go through what i'm sort of talking about now oh, yeah, have, sorry, a, yeah, yeah. have a strategy ready to go um, then regardless of what happens in the game, you know roughly what you need to do and you don't get that sort of winging it aspect where you go in, you try and, you try and get the prize with half your army, half your army gets ruined, you've then only got half your army to try and recover a situation or mm. you know, you, you sit back and, and try an attrition for, for too long um, or you try an avoid, avoidance for too long and then perhaps you lose the objective and then you haven't got given yourself enough time to to recover the situation. So if you've, if you've looked at your setup and done your bookkeeping properly, you can almost keep the tempo of the game. And even if everything is going wrong and it's a complete disaster, you can still look back at the objectives and the VPs and what you need to score to move forward. Um, you still know which A that you can pivot into to try and get the game to end in a way that you want it to end. And it essentially, it just cuts down those micro decisions of trying to figure out what's going on 
Yeah, because I, I suppose as you've as you've already pointed out, you you roughly if you know your own army well enough, I mean even even when you're building it for the first time, you have a pretty good understanding of what what's going to work well. So yeah, like your Rohan or whatever, you go. Um, I, I know they're going to hit hit pretty hard, and um, but I suppose you can also do those snap decisions on how the opponent's going to play. So for example, you know you're coming up against uh, an elven army with with. 12 bows and you know a load of wood elves or something like that then you're thinking okay they're going to try and avoid me for as long as possible how do i mitigate against that yeah somehow i don't think those 30 wood elves are going to want to hit my shield wall what's the plan going to be yeah yeah exactly and that i guess that helps categorize the game you're playing within a a very quick quick couple of moments and and help you kind of make those instant decisions and how that for example you're going to set up or or you know which hero is going to go where and all that sort of stuff yeah and it, and it makes for a really clear distinction between what you want to do and what you need to do um because you'd really like to hold on to your plan and you know stand fast and and be in the place that you need to be to make it work but if you're bearing you know the overview in mind of where the points are and and what plan you're following you can be much more clinical about the decision that you need to make and the changes you need to make, rather than having that horrible moment of, I don't know what to do. Yeah, and there's there's definitely that, that time in some games when you've decided on a strategy early on and maybe the dice haven't gone your way or maybe it's just not worked out because it was the bad, it was the wrong decision or whatever it is. Yeah. Um and, and you kind of you're almost reluctant to let go of it, but whether it's pride or or whatever it is, but you kinda of think, Oh, but I want to I want I want to see this strategy through. But if you're if you're you know, stand take a step back and decide actually look, this is not working, um take the second day out of the pocket and give it a bash. Exactly. Yeah. Um the game can go wrong in every way possible, but you should never lose track of where you are. Mm. Um, and and if you if you set yourself up properly, that won't happen. And if you've got your bookkeeping um, up to scratch as well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So, um, I, I, does that cover all the sort of the, the the main overarching strategy you want to talk about? Because we've got a couple more bits to to smash through. The I mean the last sort of section for me um, is sort of doing the basics right and and mic points. Right. Um, I can kind of tie those into into a, a double. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll just kind of go down my list, to be honest. It's just like just some little things to think about while you're playing. Mm, um, cool. So do, doing the basics right, you know, move methodically, start from, you know, left to right or right to left, whatever makes sense on the table, but think about who's moving and when they're going to be moving and, and do it in an order, not all hodgepodge. You know, maybe the... Um, You've got less models than they have, so maybe you want to move your whole front rank first, you know, plug all the gaps that you need to, and then you can decide where your spear supports need to go. And it's about being flexible but methodical on, on who's moving and when and in what order. Mm. Yeah, there's there's a definitely um, you say calling it doing the basics right. There is, there is an uh, there's an element of especially if you're on the back foot if you're losing a game. Um, some things like just basic, yeah, giving yourself enough spear supports in the right spot is is something basic. But but yeah, you can start to let them slip if you're if you're on the back foot. Yeah, if someone has a really panicky heroic move and they realise that they've not charged a model or two models that they needed to, and suddenly you've left a whole you know a whole plug open can basically spell the end of the game. So it's just being methodical. Um, you've then got um, stand fast and heroic march ordering, um, looking at who needs to move maybe before the march because you want them to charge, or maybe you want models to run away before the stand fast kicks in because you want the game to end. You know, the, these kind of 
cheesy-ish things. You know, maybe you just really need people to not be on the table. Or you need to get a couple of charges to tag some people and then everybody else wants to run away and form a bit of a rear guard. So think about the order of who's going to activate and how they're going to activate before you, you start doing it. Yeah, that that is a good point. I mean, it's I mean, that is actually one of the fundamental basics. It's one, uh, very early on, and and I know I made it in my the first tournament I ever went to uh, was um, I played against Josh Javoy, and he he told me at the end of the game, "Don't put your heroes at the front." I had crossbows, you know that sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. And, and I, you know, some, something simple like that, and like you say, a panicky heroic move. Maybe maybe you're thinking, "Oh God, I need, we need to either I need to get my lunch, or <laughs> I don't know, or, or whatever yeah, it is." Exactly. Or you know, you want want to you, maybe you only have. A, a turn or two, uh, 15 minutes left, and you're panicking and moving everything too quickly. Um, doing those things methodically can can save you a lot of time later on. It'll save you a lot of grief later on. Absolutely. Um, so a next one, which, which I think a lot of people might maybe haven't thought of, and it could change the way they play and just be really helpful, is at the start of the combat phase, before anybody does anything, check your banner ranges, and you know exactly which combats are going to be in range and which ones aren't, and then you're much less likely to forget that you have a banner. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really good tip, actually. It's yeah. just a, it's a tiny little thing, but people forget so often, and and you end up measuring five or six times to see who's in banner range. If you do it at the start of the turn, you won't forget that you've got a banner. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's a good little tip. That's good, definitely a good little tip. I like that. And yeah. I suppose just yeah, it also makes you think about where you're going to move it next turn and things like that. If you're always yeah, keeping an eye on it and like stuff like that. Heroic combats, looking at where your your heroes are going to end their combat to make sure mm. they're still in banner range and things like that. Especially if you're running like Rohan and you want to be make sure you're still in range for gambling. And, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, again, for the doing the basics right, check the rule book because 50-50 is a bad half the time. So if you're not sure of something and if someone's in a bit of a rush and they ask, you know, roll a dice, just check the rules and, and hope, you know, eventually you won't need to check the rules because you'll know. But any time that something goes down to a 50-50... You're, you're either wrong or it's not going to be to your advantage, you know, wherever possible. That's an interesting one, yeah, because uh, rules disputes do come up and, you know, wording is uh, can sometimes be a bit intricate or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I've I, I found that the, the best way of doing these sort of things is uh, either going, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll just check it up. Well, you roll the dice or whatever it is. If it's a, if it's something that's, you know, not pressing then exactly that moment, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example, but I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a, a, a hero that you can't remember the fight value of, you know, one person yeah, six, or like, five or one person you know, six or whatever. Defending um, barriers and stuff like like that the, yeah exactly the lesser seen rules like just check them because 50 50s can often you know not be really what you want yeah 100 percent. and just and just going oh okay well let's just let's just do this combat first i'll roll, roll my dual roll and while i'm while you're fanning around deciding what you do i'll, I'll look at the rules just, exactly. just just quickly glancing through you don't waste that much time doing it. no and like you say it can really help and and the last one for doing the basics right is is just don't be complacent if you think that you've won the game before you've started and you don't take the game seriously, it can often catch up and, and you know turn around and bite you. Um, and you can end up losing something that was very favourable because you didn't take it seriously. So don't, yeah. don't be complacent and just go through the motions as you always would. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I think 
that's something probably that, that uh, top tier players should definitely consider because ultimately, uh, if you're you know world champion, the the winner of the GBHL, then you could easily clash up against some some newbie you've never met before and think, oh well, they're they you know they're probably rubbish. They've got nothing on me. I, I like the look of this uh, my this matchup. I like the look of the the scenario. This all works in my favour. And you could easily go, well, all right, I'll get I'll get my first drink in or whatever, um, and it, and maybe not pay as much attention and and then slowly lose the game because of it. Yeah, and, and sometimes if you're, you know, that arrogant, I suppose, or, or maybe you've just taken your eye off the ball that much, you might realise a little bit too late that you should have been paying attention all along. Mm. Um, and, and you can just leave yourself a game for, for not paying attention, which I've seen people do. And I, I'm sure I've probably done it at some point, you know, like the the last game on day one or whatever, you really, you know, you've had a few beers already and you kind of just want to get it wrapped up and suddenly halfway through the game, you've not taken it seriously because you thought you had a favourable match-up and you're on your ass. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've definitely seen that when when a, a new person enters uh, tournaments that I, I sort of, I look at them and say, oh, I've never seen them before. And then I see them playing against someone, you know, some top-tier player and think, oh, they'll, they'll be fine. And then, I, I, you know, they'll get smashed probably. And then I look over later and, and there's like, there's sweat on the brows of, of <laughs> yeah. top-tier players and they're, they're getting really worried. And you're looking at it and think, oh, I, maybe... If if I if if I was that top tier player, maybe maybe you know I, I would have been in the same sort of sticky situation because I'd thought I just assumed what was uh, what was going to be the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned might. Now this is uh, this is probably one of the basics, isn't it? But might is is probably one of the if not the most important um, resource in the game. Um, and yet it's so easy for people to spend might in the wrong times and the wrong places. I'm guess uh, I guess is your your point. Yeah, and so, I mean, this one's kind of simple and it's maybe more rhetorical questions than anything else, but it's it's always something to consider and it plays into your strategy at the start of the game and the foray strategy that you've picked. Um, so just use might intelligently. Are you likely to need heroic moves off, move-offs at the end of the game and need to save might, or do you really need to thin the horde out? Um, making sure that you've got disposable might for stuff if you need to. Um, and then, you know, the questions that you really need to ask is, do you really want a heroic strike off? You know, is that some, is that a situation that you really want to happen? Mm-hmm. Or how could you avoid that or engineer a situation where you're not having a strike off? Do you really need that heroic move off? Are you impulsively counter-calling a heroic move because you've lost priority or because your opponent's called one and you kind of you feel like you want to keep the pressure on, but do you actually need to call that heroic move? Or are you quite happy in the position that you're in with your anchored flank and your heroes safe and you're happy for them to just charge you? Um, it's really important to try and plan for where the might is going to be spent. And, you know, you can have 12 might points in your army list, but if they're all on combat heroes, you might as well have zero because you know that for your army to work in the way that you want it to work, that those might points are going to be allocated to striking, combating, and killing stuff. And suddenly, if you know, if you've gone down the alpha route and you've not made any plan B, you could end up with no might points. All of your heroic combats have whiffed, and then suddenly you you're really in for a bad time. Yeah. And so and I was just gonna. I was just gonna say that that sometimes um, second guessing yourself on 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 those decisions, like you say, that that impulsive might. Uh, like it's very easy, and I've seen it definitely with newer players in my local area, where sometimes uh, uh, someone will strike against their hero, and they'll just instantly go, "Yeah, I'll counter strike." And you think, "Oh, I wouldn't have done that with 
you know, defense nine Durin or wh- whatever it exactly, is. You know, yeah. that sort exactly. of thing is a really, a really good example. If you've got a very high defense hero with you know all three wounds there, maybe the maybe it's fog of war and the, you don't need to protect your your general or whatever it is. Yeah, you don't need to spend that point of light at all. And second guessing no. yourself rather than impulsively countercalling is is definitely a, a great idea. I think that comes back into the um, sort of bloodthirst people wanting to yeah. you know get the kills where they can get the kills when you know you just want to look at playing the long you know the slightly longer game yeah and 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 i think you're right and everyone everyone wants their hero you know if you've chosen durin as your leader and whatever you think yeah i want him to you know kick his ass or whatever exactly. <laughs> all that sort of stuff it's 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 very easy to go to get into this kind of almost pride that uh, of your own guys you know you've you've painted them you've spent a lot of time building and painting them and you've you've taken them along and maybe you've won your first game or two of the tournament and mm. and then Durin comes up against i don't know Goral Fireskin or something like that and Goral strikes and you think well you know is Goral going to kill him maybe i, I can't i can't maybe Goral would kill him in one go but but you know, you, you think, know maybe, it... maybe some scrub like Grishnak or yeah something. okay yeah, so some scrub I, yeah. I think he's got strike yeah yeah he, he exactly, walks up to yeah. Dane Ironfoot and you immediately want to impulsively counter strike if you're in a one on one when really you're like, uh, probably not. And actually, in that situation, the person may well, with Grishnak or uh, Gorbag or whoever it is, they may well be calling that strike just purely to try and extract a point of might out of your hero. Exactly. Because in the grand scheme of things, you might be happy to lose your Grishnak that's already spent two of his might to strip one of your only might points out of your Iron Hills army. Yeah, exactly, and that those sorts of those sorts of moves, um, like you say, the 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 just the impulsiveness of it can be yeah. can be the 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 downfall. And and actually, if this fits again into it, which is I guess why it's a good strategy. The your four A thing is if you know what you want, you're wanting to achieve out of the game. If your strategy is attrition, then maybe a strike isn't isn't always going to be the best decision or or whatever. You know, if if you're spending points of might on a heroic combat in the first turn, when actually your plan is to avoid or is to is to slow slowly whittle down the opponent rather than you know going for that alpha strike then are you spending the might in the right place yeah and it's just about you know you might potentially make the same first decision but then follow up in a slightly different way mm-hmm. so you might charge in and call a heroic combat but you know if you're playing the alpha strategy you might then go in for a double dip and try and kill two more models but if you're playing the avoidance strategy you might use that extra move post killing to run away or, or reposition and and it's just about bearing your overall strategy in mind rather than than going in against your plan. Yeah, and sticking to it is is not yeah. is, is a great idea rather than like I, I guess it is that it's that bloodlust, isn't it? It's that, uh, that again if you if you've uh, if you're you've got a successful heroic combat maybe you've you've killed three people or whatever and you think yeah this is amazing i could, oh, I could just do three another three people and it's great even though that wasn't my original plan and or, or whatever you know these sorts of things you can, yeah, can and, get and carried so away and lose focus and suddenly you're playing the attrition game but your best heroes in the middle of someone's war band with no might left and no one anywhere near him and you're mm-hmm. like oh okay or even uh, which I'm, I'm definitely guilty on. I played against Ed Ball in a um, in one of the last tournaments last year, and and he uh, I was doing all right with Gothmog and um, and the Witch King and all this sort of stuff, and I was cutting through um, Rivendell Knights like nobody's business. I was chopping them down. I was getting really into it, and then uh, he he said something. I, I he said, "Oh well, I'll go uh, I'll go two handed and stab with this guy or whatever it was," and I, I was just suddenly or faint a two handed faint with this guy, and I was like. What are you doing, Ed? That that will drop you below my fight value. And then he just and then it 
the penny dropped and I thought, oh yeah. no, I've I've lost the game because I've been getting so sidetracked killing his Rivendell Knights that that I've lost the game because uh, he had all the objectives. Yeah, it, it reminds me of an iconic scene out of my favourite film of all time, which is Shaun of the Dead, yeah. where they're right outside the pub and they end up having this massive argument after spending ages pretending to be zombies and sneaking through. And they have this massive shouting match and then they realise what they've done. They turn around and there's a hundred zombies just staring at them. And yes. they're like, oh God, I've blown it, basically. Yeah, and exactly. It happens so often. But I think and, and, what, what, one of the most punishing things that can happen, um, and, and it's, it's just an absolute sweet treat when you're on the good side of it, is the lines have maybe just clashed or maybe they're just shy of clashing and you win priority and your opponent calls that heroic move as a, as a knee-jerk reaction because they think that they really, really need to charge in. And so you, you let them have it and, and what they end up doing is charging in to, you know, right where you want them. And because they've made the first move, they've brought their flanks further forward, which will let you send your heroes around the sides for those big, horrible, heroic mm. combats right into the back lines. It'll let you wrap around and get the traps. Where if they had held their nerve and not called the heroic move, you'd have to be much more cautious about how you engage. And maybe you just meet the meet the front line for line and you, you lose the opportunity for those flanks, which wouldn't have presented themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, like you say, it's it's just those little little tiny mistakes or tiny kind of uh, errors or, or, or whatever it is that, that has caused these uh, the bloodlust mm. <laughs> that sort of thing to, yeah oh, to... I, I really want I really want to make sure that Aragorn gets to charge in so I'm going to call a heroic move and then Aragorn charges into the center of the line you've got two ranks behind him you know he's not going to cut through the middle and in doing that you've been able to get you know, Fimble and Yasneg on a flank each with two hunter orcs, all ready to call heroic combats and trap everything. And yeah. you know, it's about those trade-offs. And and sometimes they make a mistake that they think they're doing the right thing, and it plays into your hands. And it, it's just about having those strategies and and just thinking about you know the knee-jerk reaction of, oh, maybe I don't want Aragorn to charge. And you know, looking at the bigger picture and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and and I think those four A's will be a very, very helpful way of of, of helping young uh, young people like me or noobs at the <laughs> game like me uh, just focus. If it's just if it is because sometimes I hear people say something like you know play the scenario or whatever, but it's no good saying play the scenario if you don't know how you're yeah. going to win that scenario. Yeah, just, and, just score the points, stupid. Yeah, yeah, and and that that I think some I can I can understand where people are coming from. Top tier players would say, "Oh, you just forgot about scenario, didn't you?" Yeah, I did. But actually, if you don't have a plan to how you're going to do that, then you it's very hard to focus on something you know uh, like getting to objective B or whatever it is. Yeah. But if you know if you know uh, my plan my the step the stepping stone to get to that objective is by playing aggressively or by playing avoidance or whatever it is then so, uh, then you you know you have no, no chance really because you're kind of floating in the wind and hoping that you might stumble across a way of getting there but have no plan to actually do it absolutely i, I wish i'd have uh, put a pattern on the the 4a strategy now 
Yeah, it's going to be it's mine now. Be, it's it's, it's going to be, be the Entmoot, Entmoot forays. That's what it's going to be called. <laughs> <laughs> this could be the, the, the downfall of my SVG career. Yeah, you wait, Will. I'm coming for you this uh, this, <laughs> this season. Well, Will, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I, 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 I think even just those those forays have been a major takeaway for me just from our conversation. But there's so much food for thought there, and I hope I hope everyone listening has has got uh, has got something out of it. And I know I want to listen back to it just to just so that I can. Um, absorb more of your your pearls of pearls of wisdom so oh you're uh, too kind ah uh, well well it's an absolute pleasure having you on and it's it's been amazing hearing your the insight into a champion's game <laughs> so uh thank you very much uh for coming on to the podcast thank you very much for having me oh my god the four a's are going to go with me to my grave now four a's it's 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 something I understand before. I've I've spoken to people about these sorts of things, and um, you know the Green Dragon mentioned avoidance armies and and all these sorts of things. And there's lots of these kind of technical terms floating around out there. But I've, I've never, for some reason, until now, until Will explained the four A's and the four kind of ways of actually thinking and focusing your your strategy, did I actually think that I could maybe maybe start to be a bit more strategic i cannot wait to put some of those uh, ideas into practice will champion there uh, talking about the strategy battle game and the strategies involved it was an absolute pleasure uh, to delve into the minds of all of the four players um, during this episode it's been really really interesting over the over the course of the podcast just listening to various different uh, strategies various different approaches to the game various different little little just little tweaks and little ideas and and i suppose the the many there are many things to take away from it but if i were to summarize for you um which may you know if i may be so bold um if i were to summarize the things i've learned i think the main things are one aim f- know what you're trying to do what is your aim in the game are you trying to um, destroy your opponent? And, and this seems very obvious. Or is it to spread out and capture the objectives? How are you going to achieve those aims is the really crucial thing here. Everyone knows that in a scenario, you know, you get a certain amount of VPs for killing the leader, a certain amount of VPs for breaking them, blah, 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 and, and all the other different things. But somehow, I've never really considered how I'm going to do that during the course of a game. And it seems so bloody obvious. But either way... The, just focus in your mind, get focused and get your game face on as soon as you approach that table. As soon as you put your toy soldiers on that tray and you're ready to deploy, be thinking, looking at the opponent, saying, analysing what kind of army are they, which of the four A's do those fit in that we would say. Is it an avoidance army? Is it an alpha strike army or an annihilation army? I think I'd like to call it as well. Is it a uh, an attrition army you know uh, which one of these is it which kind of army is it and then work out how your army fits into that how you're going to apply it so think about the game think about how you're going to achieve the objectives and what your plans are and i know it sounds stupid but take your time on that the other thing is know your army and know the opponent's army inside out if you can and and that's probably just a matter of experience playing games against opponents that are you know are tough tough opponents not just playing against you know uh, your little brother or your you know your dad or whoever's not particularly great at the game uh, really test yourself and and ask them to test you as well and um, that's probably the best way but also of course uh, getting up to date on the books and uh, maybe just before the tournaments having a look at the uh, you know what the sort of tournament lists are, are if there are any uh, clues to that sort of thing uh, what sort of things work at this sort of um, points limits and having a quick glance at all the rules 
tools for those various different things. Very valuable, very valuable. And also, I think the other takeaway is really, really think about how you manage your resources and how maybe just second guessing each step you take. Is, is that heroic move worth it? Is that heroic strike necessary? You know, uh, who are you targeting here? Is it more important to uh, try and, uh, I don't know, shoot a, a horse out of uh, underneath Aragorn? Or is it more important to get that banner? Those sorts of things. The, make, a, make a decision and, you know, try and try and follow it through and, and also reassess those, those strategies if they're not working. Lots and lots of food for thought. I mean, my summaries are completely useless compared to the four people we've been listening to. But either way... Uh, lots and lots of stuff uh, are there to to enjoy and to get your teeth into. And I, I definitely want to listen back to all of this because, um, you know, sometimes when you're listening to a conversation the first time, you just don't quite take it in. So I uh, really hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, a couple more parish notices, as it were. Um, lots of cool stuff on the YouTube channel um, at the moment. This week, um, it depends on when you're listening to this, but of course it'll still be there and catch up. Um, there's going to be Matt Davies. Um, from Generation Shift. If you've never heard of him, uh, you've never encountered his bases, I'd be very surprised because he's all over the place for um, uh, the strategy battle game. He's been on lots of... Uh, he's, he's I think he won a Throne of Schools or certainly got Best Army at Throne of Schools. Um, he's he's uh, sells uh, lots of wonderful resin bases. Um, he is an absolute conversion monster. Um, so if you're listening to this before Thursday the 18th of February or thereabouts, um, then uh, head over on uh, Battle Games of Middle Earth YouTube channel and watch that uh, video live and you can comment and join in the discussion. Uh, second parish notice uh, while you're there why not uh, hit the subscribe button um, I think I've, by the time you've listened to this I may have hit 4,000 subscribers amazing thank you very much to everyone who listens to this podcast who also supports the YouTube channel as well Battle Games in Middle Earth is a great great place for dumping my video kind of experiments largely um, and one of those video experiments recently has been getting the tinfoil hat on and falling down the rabbit hole of predictions about the Amazon TV series so if you haven't seen that do have a look because um, it's it's a bit of fun but um, I like to think that my, my, my sort of predictions may end up coming true you never do know but um, but have a look at that as well. And I've got lots more to do uh, with relation to my 1,000-point ruffian challenge. I hinted to it um, when I was speaking to Will earlier on. But um, during uh, during the course of this year, aiming towards Throne of Schools at Warhammer World at the end of the year, I am building 1,000 points of Sharky's Rogues. And that means 150 or so ruffians. Yes, that's right. Um, and... I'm kind of crowdsourcing or, or uh, crowdfunding the project. I uh, I don't really want to be lumbered with 150 ruffians in a box somewhere. So, excuse me. So what I've decided to do is uh, get you guys involved. And you can get involved. There's still time. There's still time. Essentially, a number of uh, my wonderful, wonderful Patreons, um, and if you're a Patreon supporter, thank you very much, um, just head over to patreon.com slash battlegamesinmiddleearth if you want to uh, give some financial support and get entered into prizes and win dice and all that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, I, I, that was a bit of a meander from my wonderful Patreons have joined in uh, to the, the the cause, essentially to provide some ruffians for me, including Russell, Nathan, Rowan, Gayerton, Brian, Darren, Skylar and Devon. Um, uh, uh, Devon and maybe uh, uh, somebody else from the DCHL. Um, we, ha- we don't know exactly how many um, uh, ruffians they're committing just yet, but I know 102 ruffians have at least have been committed, which is amazing. And all of these people have 
decided they're going to send me ruffians, buy me ruffians. I will paint them, take them into uh, Warhammer World, uh, play a thousand points worth, and then I will send them all back. And I'm even doing some really cool colour schemes like hooligans, uh, football ruffians, which you'll see a video on very soon on the channel, uh, cyberpunk, Napoleonic redcoat ruffians, pirate ruffians, uh, Baratheons. Uh, this is really cool. Stannis Baratheon ruffians. Um, lots of cool ideas. And I will be painting all those up and putting them on the YouTube channel and doing various different fun things like scenarios and whatnot with them. Uh, so excellent, excellent stuff. That's all uh, coming up on the YouTube channel. So really, really, really appreciate anyone's support. And um, uh, do head over to Battle Games in Middle Earth the YouTube channel if you if you fancy watching some ruffian related content or just seeing me slowly wilt as I paint 150 or so of the damned models although actually I must say I think they're really nice models so there you go um, I think that's all the parish notices um, as I mentioned already Patreon um, if you've never heard of Patreon it's just um, it's just a really cool platform to um, kind of subscribe to stuff that you already get for free that's right. Uh, so I can't quite work out what the advantage is. But it's a support. It's a way of supporting me and doing the podcasts. And obviously, you get this stuff for free. You get the podcast for free. And that will always stay the same. You, The podcast is always going to be free. But um, if you feel like uh, it's worth it, chip in a quid or whatever it is uh, per month, uh, feel free. It really, really helps go towards A, paying for kit, um, B, paying for the these hosting fees for podcasts, um, and C, just, you know, just making me feel happy because people care about the podcast and things like that. Um, but yeah, it really does help. And mainly, um, it, it gets you lots of cool goodies like um, Battle Games in Middle-Earth dice, or it's not Battle Games in Middle-Earth, I tell a lie, they're Entmoot dice, and uh, they've got a bit of boo-rah-rum on them, uh, they've got a little Entmoot um, logo on, so these are really cool. And uh, anyone who subscribes, uh, I think it's over three pounds, gets both dice. Anyone under that gets one dice. And I'll send you the other one eventually in the coming months if you if you only want. So uh, stick around if you're if you can't afford all of it. But anyway, uh, that's really cool. And also I, I do a, a monthly prize draw, so people can win something cool. I think it, last time it was Glorfindel uh, uh, mounted the new metal one, or I say new old new metal one. Um, I've done what else have I done in the past? I've done build a pony and I did oh I can't remember anyway uh, some Forge World stuff and I'm sure at some point there'll be a big big Forge World giveaway um, whenever Ents come out have I committed to that already have I just done that have I just committed to that? Anyway, it might not be a forgery giveaway. It might be a plastic giveaway. But either way, uh, if you're a Patreon um, supporter, you will be entered into a draw at some point to win something pretty cool. So um, I think that's everything. Um I will return to a relatively normal format last time. Um, I didn't want this podcast to end up ranting on for too long, even though that's exactly what's happened. So I thought I'd, I'd get rid of the lists and get rid of the um, the riddles in the dark, and hopefully it'll uh, trim the the size. But either way, I really hope you've enjoyed this. If you if you really enjoyed this kind of podcast and want more, get in touch. Entmootpodcast at gmail what do you think of the strategies? Do you want more of this kind of discussion? Do you want more practical tips on how to be a better player? Because you know what? I'm learning a lot by just doing the, uh, doing the podcast, so hopefully you're learning a lot by listening. With that in mind, thank you very much for listening to yet another Entmoot uh, podcast. Boo-ra-roo.